Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Welcome to Almerin Radio on a Wednesday, because that is hump day. That's how you know, like, it is hump day. Yeah. And um, I have some uh, great news to report. Well, it's not great. Well, it might be. Um, I spilled tea with sugar on my keyboard the other day. Sunday, much, much to my great frustration, because uh, I like my keyboard, right? It's a Bluetooth keyboard. It's a nice one. It's a Logitech one, and it's actually the second time I've done it. Yeah, I didn't want to say that. And uh, so I, I, I couldn't unstick the keys, but I was kind of stupid because I didn't try very hard. I didn't even go on YouTube and say... Sugar on my keyboard, what do I do? Because, you know, YouTube, they have an answer for everything. Sad truth of our of our existence today. But it's, hey, it's out there. So, uh, yeah, my number two son doing home improvements told me that. Dad, everything's on YouTube. You want to fix anything? It's on YouTube. Um, and... Hashtag truth. So, um, anyhow. Um, what they tell me to do is take alcohol and um, and use alcohol to dissolve the sugar. Hmm. 
So what I did was I, I take a cotton swab and I dip it in the alcohol. I go get a big bottle of, I had calling actually, go get a, a big bottle of uh, alcohol. And um, and I wipe it around the keys and it's wor- it starts to work. And then I come back in the morning and uh, I, didn't, I must not have got all the sugar because it there was some keys that were sticky. It worked on some. Didn't work on others. So I thought, you know. Um, Okay, so the concept here is this. You shut the electricity off, okay? Now, most of the electronics now are solid state. So water's not really going to damage it unless you hit the battery and stuff like that. So the alcohol is going to go down there, dissolve the sugar, take away the stick, and then it will evaporate. So, you know... So, like, you can pour it onto the keyboard. So, that's what... So, I'm thinking that. And so, that's what I did. Work like a champion. Yeah. You know, it doesn't... When I logically reason through things, it doesn't always lead to the best outcome. But in this case, it did. So, I'm happy to report. So, if you have... um, If you ever have this kind of a problem... Um, I would tell you, feel free to uh, get the alcohol out. <clears throat> Initially, use a cotton swab around the keys to see if that's enough to unstick it. And it will depend how much sugar's actually gone down into your keyboard in the fluid. And uh, and if, uh, if you have to dump it in there, uh, as long as you have a solid-state keyboard, which most of these things are, uh, feel free. Yeah, it worked for me. So I'm excited. My keyboard's back. Yeah. So, um, so that's exciting. But I have to tell you that yesterday was one of the best days of my life. Yeah, how about that? Um, it starts out, I'm getting ready to go down to Camp Pendleton to do post-traumatic winning. Spend all day, actually. Something I'd never done. But to spend all day doing post-traumatic winning with the midshipmen that are there from all over the country. Um, they get brought, and there's this uh, pro-tray mid um, thing that goes on. And it's their junior or – it's their sophomore junior year. And they, you know, they're essentially be at Camp Pendleton for a month training. So I got asked, would you come down and do post-traumatic waiting for them? And um, I said, I, I'd, I'd be delighted to. And But what I got asked by – their commanding officer, or the you know the MOI who's running the whole thing, uh, his name is Kevin Norton. He's the MOI at the University of uh, Arizona. He said, "Mac, um, what I want to do though is in the afternoon. If you do the presentation in the morning in the afternoon, I would like to do the uh, to do kind of a practical app." And so I just did what I've done. Um, I just did what I've done. In my seminars, right? Give them questions. Go do it in a small group. Come back. Everybody will report to a large group, and then we'll have uh, conver- conversations about it. And we did. And it was, it, was, it was awesome. Okay, so before I leave to go down to Pendleton, um, I, look at, I look at, I get a notification that says, this guy, and I won't say his name, want, um, would like to be car called um, 
would like to be part of your post-medic winning group. And I see the name, and I say, I know that name. Where do I know the name from? But I can't remember. So sometime in the middle of the presentation, um, it dawns on me who the guy is. And um, so... He is a parent of one of the Marines that was killed in the Amtrak incident. And so in the middle of the day, I'm thinking, holy smoke, you know, uh, I'm going to get a chance to talk to that guy. And I can't tell you how excited I was that he had reached out to post-traumatic wedding. So I come home and I had a scheduled call from a, a, a special operations guy. Asking me, can you help me help a friend? Introduced by a mutual friend. And I said, absolutely. So I, I had a great conversation with him. And uh, so looking forward to that. Hoping it, you know, it all goes well. Because um, you can hear the concern in somebody's voice. You know, a really close friend that's that's um, outside now the parameters of what anybody thinks is normal. and uh, And again, normal for, you know. For us and normal for special operations people, I mean, that's wouldn't that'd be beyond the bounds of what most people would consider normal, but it is for us. So um, you can hear the concern in their voice, in his voice, and so so got that, and I was exhausted, and so I came back in my office knowing that I, you know, I I had work I had to do, and and so um, I just sent a message and said, "Hi, I'm Mike McNamara." Um, and I've seen different things that he had done. And I said, I just want to tell you how impressed I am with, you know, the things I've seen you do. And, uh, I'd love to talk to you about post-traumatic winning. Here's my number. Uh, within 10 mes- minutes, I get a message back saying that, um, right, um, Can I call you right now? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so two hours and 12 minutes later, um, uh, the conversation ended. It's just a great conversation. And um, and I'm very hopeful uh, that, uh, you know, he and his wife will um, will take a look at post-traumatic wedding. I, I know they will. I sent him the six links last night. And then after I got off the phone... You know, I don't know where these thoughts come from in your head. But I just had this thought that, you know, this is one of the best days of my life. And again, I don't know where that... I, I've had a thought like that, I think, twice, uh, two other times in my life. Once I was with my son, and it, this was the first time it ever happened to me. Um, John and Patrick and I were at a hockey game. And it was before Patrick was take, was heading off to OCS. And we were doing something, the, the, the thing we've done longest together is go watch hockey, um, the three of us. And we went up to see the Kings play. And so here I am sitting with my sons, two grown men, uh, one a Marine officer, one you know, going to officer candidate school to become one. And, and the thought just popped into my head, this is a perfect moment in your life. 
And I don't know where it comes from, that narrative. Um, and it was like, where, where did that come from? And then, but knowing that it's true, right? Knowing that it's true is very cool. And so um, I had it once with my daughters, the same voice. We were at the Hollywood, we were at the Greek Amphitheater in Los Angeles at an outdoor concert. Uh, we went up to see Ed Sheeran and on a beautiful night in Los Angeles. I'm with my, you know, my daughters. And uh, that voice speaks to me again and says, this is, a, this is a perfect moment in your life. With them here, you know, all about, you know, all the love and warmth and laughter and music and all that. So, and that it was, so it was that same voice last night when we got done talking to think that maybe post-traumatic winning could be part of what helps a family that's had such a, such a terrible loss so that they can continue to live not a good life or, or to get through this, but that they can, even given the loss of their son, that they can live a great life. Um, I can't tell you, I mean, I, I call that, that the Grinch moment when your heart grows and you ha you feel this incredible experience that you've helped somebody who, who, you know, um, really needs help. And so, um, yeah, so yesterday, uh, turned into this, this incredible day for me. As I said, one of the best days of my life. Um, and, uh, so Anyhow, I thought I would share that with you. The um, just amazing though. I mean, if if you could follow me around to see the things that happened to me, um, somebody comes up to me at the presentation yesterday and says, "Um, I just want to thank you for doing this," and I said, oh, "I said, hey, you don't have to, uh, you know, but thank you." And he said to me. I was raped a few years ago. And you made me feel normal again today. He said, thank you. <sighs> right? Knocked me over with a feather. You know, so uh, just an incredible, incredible day. And uh, a day I'll never forget. Also got a chance to meet um, somebody who I've been emailing with for, I don't know, maybe nine months or so. Her husband saw post-traumatic winning last summer. They were at that, they were in Las Vegas at that concert when that mass shooting happened. And so they're in the middle of that as that thing, you know, kicks off. She is now getting, I believe, her doctorate in counseling. And so he told her after he came back from seeing it, he goes, you've got to call this guy. You've got to call Mac. And so she called me, sent me an email, and she said, my husband came home <laughs> acting very oddly because he doesn't really get excited about mental health, and he told me that I needed to reach out to you. And so um, so she did, and so we've been, you know, we've been chatting back and forth for about nine months and uh, got a chance. She showed up yesterday to watch and spend the day, and... Um, and just a, a a delightful, delightful person who struggles with her own, right, PTSD, her own trauma. And uh, but got a chance to see this, got a chance to watch it in person, and then got a, a chance to uh, 
see the midshipmen kind of deal with it. And uh, very, very cool stuff. Very, very cool stuff. So, uh, so again, yeah, one of the best days of my life yesterday. Um, yeah, cool stuff. Um, today's the third installment of this week. I've been doing stuff about discipline because I, I do believe that's a, that's a problem in the Marine Corps. It isn't a culture of safety. It is a culture of doing what you have to do, doing it the right way, doing that every time, right? Whether somebody's looking or not, I believe that's the problem. And, uh, I believe that a lot of things that get said relative to these multiple investigations when you put them side by side are what I would call whistling past the graveyard. So on Monday, uh, I played an interview uh, with General Van Riper um, that um, is is one of the best interviews I've ever done. Uh, Yesterday was an interview I did with General Mattis, which is another great interview, them talking about leadership and discipline. And today you'll hear a, another one of those interviews uh, from uh, General Zinni uh, talk about the same subject. I believe it's hugely, hugely important. And um, when you look at the Amtrak investigation, um, it's not, you know, the Navy and the Marine Corps don't know how to work together anymore. It's, you know, there's orders, there's SOPs, and people just didn't do them. Okay? That's, 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 that's leadership, and it's discipline, and it's things like supervision. There's, a, there's, a, there's an old saying in the Marine Corps that says, expect what you inspect. And what that means is, if you don't go look, right, then you're probably going to get garbage. But if you go out and you'll inspect it, you're probably, you know, you're, you're in some way, shape, or form, you're guaranteeing the results if you will go do that. And the problem, and so, so there's also a, uh, a thing in the Marine Corps called, you know, <laughs> the troop leading steps, right? And the sixth troop step, the sixth step in troop leading is supervision. And that means I can tell you to do something, but if I don't walk around and make sure you've done it, the odds of it being done the right way are nil. But the way you ensure it is when people know you're going to look. They know you're going to get off your dead ass and you're going to take a look at this stuff. And so there is a system and there's a reason why we never have had an accident like this in our history. There's a reason for that. Because we used to do stuff like that. Now, I don't know if that's not part of the culture anymore. But it would appear to me, it would appear to me that we're struggling with it, to say the least. To say the least. So, um... So to me, that's why this series on discipline is is so important. And um, I think that the Marine Corps has to honestly take a good hard look at, at what in the hell it's doing and what problems it's solving. Because I don't believe they're solving the right problem. I do not believe that they are solving the right problem. And that's 
that's not a small deal. Okay, that's not a small deal. That's a big deal. Okay, because when these things happen, you better, you better again, have your ass and your brain wired together, and you better be solving the right problem. And so to me, um, that's why these interviews um, with these guys who are, I mean, they were, they were no compromised dudes. Absolutely no compromised dudes. And when you mess with this stuff, you know, it didn't go well if you were not doing what you were supposed to do. Yeah. Didn't, it did not go well. So, um, anyway, good morning on this, uh, on this Wednesday morning. Um, yeah, the day after one of the best days of my life. (laughs) Um, and I kid you not about that too. And, and again, the two skills that, you know, I've kind of learned to master that, that that's paved the road for all of this is, uh, listening and giving. And, you know, you hear those kind of lessons from your grandparents. The more you give in your life, the more you get. And I will tell you in my life, it's absolutely true. So if I could encourage you as you listen to this this morning, find a way in your life to, uh, you know, to give more and, uh, and watch, uh, watch what happens to your life. It's certainly been that way with mine. So uh, with all that said, uh, we'll take a look at the news. But before we do that, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. dedicated to a few people that made yesterday, like I said, one of the best days of my life. Uh, one is uh, Colonel Kevin Norton for the opportunity to go down and do post-traumatic winning with uh, with a group of about 200 midshipmen. Uh, the second one is uh, is uh, to a uh, to a girl who uh, who's the wife of a Marine who I met about uh, nine, ten months ago and uh, finally got the chance to meet her. Uh, to a uh, special operations guy who's working on saving the life of uh, of a friend and, and thinks that I could be of help. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, the father of a Marine who reached out uh, for a couple things. One, to say thank you for the shows that he's heard and the content that he's heard uh, here on All Marine Radio, which is humbling. 
And then also, secondly, uh, his interest in post-traumatic winning. And um, uh, incredibly humbling that to think that something that you would do could help somebody, you know, in, in such a difficult position and maybe be, you know, a path that they can walk down to continue to live incredible lives in spite of incredible tragedy uh, in their life, incredible trauma in their life. So this is dedicated to all those people that made uh, yesterday one of the best days of my life. Thank you. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. you got to win. Time to check the weather here on this Wednesday, hump day. Uh, currently warm on the East Coast. Uh, sunny and 80 degrees in Quantico. Mostly sunny and 85 down the coast of Camp Lejeune. In 29 Palms, sunny and 78. Camp Pendleton, dark cloud. I'm dark cloudy. Partly sunny in 65. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 70. Okinawa, dark cloudy 80. And Darwin, cloudy, dark, and 74. In Norway, it's raining in Oslo. And 52 degrees at the home of Auburn Radio, mostly cloudy in 65 already. Uh, looking for high today of 
69 degrees, 67 tomorrow, 69 on Friday, 68 and 68 on Saturday and Sunday. That is a look at your weather here on a Wednesday. Take a look at news headlines uh, in Stars and Stripes. That's where we go first. Stars and Stripes. Oh, look at that. Why does Stars and Stripes have a different look? Go figure. It does. Wow. A top story. Navy relaxes COVID-19 restrictions for vaccinated sailors. Related stories. No masks needed on Hawaii military facilities. Um, Nine hours ago. Top stories from Stars and Stripes. Uh, Marine accused of stealing ammunition at Camp Pendleton will go to court-martial. Some of this stuff's amazing. 28-year-old reconnaissance Marine accused of stealing ammunition from an armor at Camp Pendleton will go to court-martial. Staff Sergeant Gunnar Naughton has been referred to a a general court-martial. Right? That would be for felony. Right? A general court martial is presided by over by a general officer. The trial date is set for July first at Camp Pendleton, according to Lieutenant Kyle McGuire, spokesman for the Second Marine Division. Naughton, with the first reconnaissance battalion, was charged with six counts of larceny and theft of military property related offenses involving missing ammunition in early April. The charges followed an Article 32 fact-finding hearing held on March 19th at the Western Judicial Circuit Court. In the list of articles under the Uniform Code of Military Justice released by the 1st Marine Division, Naughton is accused of being found in possession of thousands of rounds of military ammunition, two military grenades, and a smoke grenade, which naval criminal investigative service investigators said were found in his home off base in Fallbrook. He is also accused of deleting evidence on Signal, a secure messaging app, and WhatsApp, and attempting to discard the ammunition in a ravine in Fallbrook. Amazing. I mean, seriously, I don't know. what do you say to that? Um, here's an interesting story. The Army Combat Physical Fitness Test um, has has created a lot of anxiety you know and uh 
headline in Stars and Stripes. House lawmaker grills army officials on gender bias, including lopsided combat fitness tests. Now, I mean, think about this. This The army has spent, I don't know, I'd be curious to know how much money the army spent developing their this physical fitness test. And and their goal was to be for to have it be, you know, you know, that there be no gender bias in this thing, right? And so um so they roll it out and it it has been modified and modified and modified because of the failure rate of women. So it's uh it's pretty so either what they forecasted was invalid or the army's in way worse physical condition than anybody ever thought. The chairwoman of a House Appropriations Committee subpanel slammed army officials at a hearing on Monday over what she called insufficient answers to questions on how the service is combating gender bias, specifically in its new combat fitness test. You remember Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, right? Okay. Now, this is so rich, right? Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to give up. I think she was the chair of the Democratic Party. Hold on. I will find out. That's how rich this stuff is, right? It's hilarious. Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, let's see. She was elected chair of the Democratic National Committee in May of 2011, replacing Tim Kaine. On July 28th of 2016, she resigned from her position after WikiLeaks released a collection of stolen emails indicating that Washerman Schultz and other members of the DNC staff had favored Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders right, and put their hand on the scale. Remember that? Yeah. This is her. Okay, just so everybody know. It's hilarious. Let's see. <clears throat> Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz grilled Sergeant Major of the Army Michael Grinston on why so many women are unable to pass the service's new combat fitness test. Quote, the test shouldn't be structured in a way that is unfair and makes it so lopsided that it's impossible for for women to really be able to succeed and that definitely will reflect in your recruitment and retention efforts. So it looks like you have a problem, and I hope you recognize that, Wasserman Schultz said during a hearing of the subcommittee. Now, what's so what's the problem? You spent millions of dollars, right, on this. So, I mean, this is theatrics, right? We're going to do this in public, so we all know, right, that politics will, you know, will be... You know, the thing, the order of the day. It's not really getting to the truth, mind you. It's just Debbie Washerman Schultz has her little moment to stand up for for women, right? Okay. So, again, rather than asking how did you come to this and why do you think women are failing in the numbers they have, given the amount of money you spent, the work you've done, blah, 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 blah. Okay. The article goes on. The Army Combat Fitness Test has long been criticized by Congress for its design, which lawmakers say comes at a disadvantage for women who struggle to pass the test. 
data revealed in April shows that 44% of women failed the Army combat fitness test compared with 7% of men. The Army rolled out the Army combat fitness test version 3 in March after Congress demanded a halt to testing in January because they were failing at an even greater rate. Lawmakers ordered the service to conduct an independent review of the CrossFit-style exam to ensure the test does not favor men. The new fixes aim to alleviate concerns from lawmakers over the low pass rate. Army officials floated the idea of including new new scoring tiers for male and female soldiers to recognize physiological difference. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who said that? What do you mean? But the changes were not implemented. Instead, Army Combat Fitness Test 3.0 made a two-minute plank an alternate event to the leg tuck, which was failing so many people, in which a soldier must bring their knees to their elbows while hanging on a bar. Wasserman Schultz on Monday demanded the Army officials at the hearing, including Lieutenant General Jason Evans, Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army, and Jack Sarash, Acting Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment, examine how the new test was implemented. To ensure women are capable of passing the test, Grinson said athletic trainers and strength coaches have been added to each brigade and the Army National Guard. He also said a second independent review of the test will determine whether test disadvantages one group. Quote, You have to make sure that all of our soldiers are fit for combat. So we are adding those strength trainers to make sure we can give everybody the opportunity to get better in physical fitness. Our goal is not to disadvantage any group in the Army Combat Fitness Test. Yeah. That according to Lieutenant... That according to... Who's Grinston? Hold on. Well, that's Sergeant Major. That's Sergeant Major of the Army, right? Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston, said that. The subcommittee's ranking Republican, John Carter, also pressed the Army officials on what they're doing to help an individual soldier who fails the test. And they went on about that. Wasserman Schultz addressed other challenges that come after graduation. She cited a report by Task and Purpose on a survey conducted by the Army Special Operations Command this month that found 40% of women in the Army Special Operations face gender bias in the workplace. The issues range from ill-fitting equipment to pressure from unit leaders to return to return after parental leave, according to the news report. The internal Army report found 39% of all women surveys said they struggled with equipment that didn't fit properly. The number decreased to 45% for women without children. So the Army physical fitness test is causing them all kinds of problems. And now the question is this. Is the general state of women in the United States Army such that they can't do this test? And they've done a shit ton of, uh, of research. And their research says that a, a woman who's reasonably, reasonably fit ought to be able to do this. And therefore, the conclusion is we've got to get more fit as a force. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, good luck with that one. Okay? Because nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear the truth. 
Okay. Nobody wants to hear the truth. Again, political theater. So, interesting. Uh, Wall Street Journal, a couple of headlines from them. Uh, Shell ordered by, by a Dutch court to cut carbon emissions. What? The Dow Jones Industrial Average is 125 years old. Congratulations to the Dow. Right. Uh, a couple interesting... Um, couple uh, interesting uh, opinion pieces. One is correcting 1619 falsehoods about the American founding. So uh, that interesting. Written by a black man who happens to be a conservative. So, And then here's another opinion piece. Ban cryptocurrencies to fight ransomware. You can't do ransomware without cryptocurrency. Interesting. Interesting little thing. So I guess you could try, but it doesn't work so well. So that in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, top story in USNI News is Japan-based carrier Ronald Reagan will make a rare Middle East patrol to cover the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, in another little poke in the eye to the United States, a Russian Navy surveillance ship is quietly operating off the coast of Hawaii. That in the news. Top headlines in Marine Corps Times are two North Carolina Marines in custody after a tent hit and run. What? Yeah, under the guise of you can't make it up. Two North Carolina Marines are in police custody in Craven County, North Carolina, after allegedly running over a tent with their truck at a local camping site, injuring two other. Both these Marines were with 2nd Transportation Battalion, 2nd Marine Logistics Group at Camp Lejeune. Inside the tent were a Navy corpsman and his spouse. They were taken to the hospital. Both have been charged with assault with a deadly weapon. Did they do it on purpose? There appears to be no relationship between the Marines in the truck and the campers according to a spokesman. Hmm. They just ran over him? Is it an accident? Inquiring minds want to know. What the hell, man? All right. So we'll keep our eye on that. Senator John Warner, who was a senator from Virginia, longtime um, member of the Senate Armed Service Committee, longtime chair of the Senate Armed Service Committee, has died at the age of 94. Uh, John Warner. Yeah. Uh, he's a uh, mainstay, right? Mainstay uh, on the Senate Armed Service Committee and on defense issues for uh, decades. Uh, the Marine Corps has de- deactivated its final active duty tank battalion. So uh, a, uh, I'm sure uh, tankers all around the world that have served in the Marine Corps um, uh, sad day for them. 
Uh, the last tanks assigned the 1st Tank Battalion, the part of the uh, Marine Air Ground Combat Center. This past July, the 1st Tank Battalion has been officially deactivated. And uh, so, uh, sad day for, for Marine Corps tankers. Right. I know a bunch of them and proud legacy uh, of Marine tankers. So uh, so that goes. Um, Marine Corps Marathon is going to return. So uh, I don't want to say life is back to normal, but it, it's showing a resemblance to normal. So that's good. Arlington Cemetery is loosening pandemic restrictions ahead of Memorial Day. That is absolutely appropriate. Um, top five stories in early bird today, and then you're going to hear General Zinni. Yeah, let me, let me tell you, these interviews, if you've never heard them, the interview with General Van Riper, absolutely awesome. The interview with uh, General Mattis, absolutely awesome. Yeah. And they just talk about leadership and discipline and really what I call operational discipline. Uh Top headline in in uh, Early Bird is, number one story is, Air Force Secretary nominee pledges to tackle enduring combat shortage and personnel issues. Wah, 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 wah. Will you speak truth to power? Oh, absolutely, Senator. Got it. Nice. Number two, the Army wants to kick out an avowed white supremacist officer, but they won't admit it. Interesting story, right? A white supremacist officer. A separations board recommended a field-grade officer for an other-than-honorable discharge in February following a 2019 criminal investigation into his extensive online rhetoric supporting white supremacy and the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Major Jeff Poole, who had been on active orders with the 98th Training Division at Fort Benning, received a general officer memorandum of reprimand earlier this year, followed up with an elimination board, a source familiar with the case told Military Times, asking for anonymity because of the sensitivity of the proceedings. But Poole's parent command, the Army Reserve, is keeping mum. The soldier's unit of assignment took appropriate action in accordance with Army regulations to address substantiated conduct. Spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Simon Flake told Military Times on Thursday, a week ago, due to protection under the Privacy Rights Act 5, we are unable to provide additional details regarding the soldier's case. That in the news. I think it's detrimental to the service when they don't. And I think these privacy things ought to be modified so that the service can come out and I will tell you this I learned recently of another case and I'm I won't I won't talk about any of the details of it because the service can't or won't comment on it the story that's circulating in the national media is an absolute lie and it's prominently cir- circulated yeah think about that and if I told you what the story was, you'd know it too. 
Most of you would know it. But the service won't come out and say anything about it. I think when when the reputation of the service is at stake, I think the service has 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 a, a, indeed a responsibility to um, to clarify the record. How about that? Clarify the record. Um, next headline. Uh, next story in uh, early bird. F-35 sale to the United Arab Emirates imperiled over the U.S. concerns about chi- about UAE ties to China. Washington seeks assurances for a $23 billion arms sale as the Emirates expand security and technology cooperation with China. I will tell you this, that will kill the deal, right? If you want to hand the technology to the Chinese, right, go ahead and and do that. So the question is, will somebody do the right thing? Uh, Next story, number four. President of the United States, Joe Biden, and what is is, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin will meet in June in Geneva in a face-to-face encounter. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Right? It should all be good, right? Joe Biden, he just cleared their pipeline into Germany. So, I mean, what's his beef with Russia? What's Russia's beef with him? So, and we'll see what kind of image that, you know, President Biden projects when he goes to meet Vladimir Putin. Right? Could you imagine if Donald Trump would have, uh, if Donald Trump would have approved that gas pipeline, the shitstorm that would have ensued? Nothing to see here, folks. Right now, again, remember, Joe Biden went to the Ukraine and essentially threatened them unless they didn't facilitate actions that directly benefited his son. Now, again, there's a lot of stuff that's bullshit. That is not. So if you want to believe in coincidences, go ahead. You're a dope. Uh, number five, Navy's new Project Avenger flight training program aims to re- produce stronger aviators. Yeah. Like physically stronger? Like what are they talking about? I mean, I don't really care about, I mean, do I really care about that? <laughs> I almost started to read the article. Like, I don't like, I don't care. Um. Some national security stories. U.S. lifts missile restrictions on South Korea, ending range and warhead limits. Whoa. 42-year-old restrictions about ballistic missiles on the South Korean Peninsula. So South Korea, right? Rep- uh, their President Moon just here. Yeah, did you see Did you see the video of the Vice President of the United States? Shook his hand and then wiped her hand off. Oh. Laughable, man. Laughable. You're looking at it going, oh, that doesn't look good. Right? Now, maybe your, maybe your hand was just sweaty. But let me tell you, the optics of it, if you haven't seen it, hilarious. Um, Russian military seeks to outmuscle the U.S. in the Arctic. Right. Um, next headline. Taliban attached conditions to Istanbul conference participation. So 
the Afghan Taliban have decided upon three conditions to attend an eagerly awaited U.S. proposed conference in Turkey. The conference must be short. The agenda should not be not include decision making on critical issues, and the Taliban delegation should be low level. A senior spokesman told the Voice of America on Tuesday. Um, all right, that is a uh, that's a look at the news this morning. The um, you're going to hear the next interview in this uh, in this whole line of uh, discipline, operational discipline that we've been doing this week. And they're just fantastic interviews that I've done over the course of uh, years. In fact, I got a question yesterday about you know, you know, how do we how do we find your your podcast? I said allmarineradio dot com. And if I could give you, um, if I could give you a place to start, there's you'll see a series of interviews on discipline. Were I you in your shoes, um, getting ready to? possibly make this a career I would absolutely positively listen to these interviews and um, yeah and so um So these are, I mean, these are fantastic um, interviews. So this interview is about, and there's a couple of different pieces because Zinni, um, Zinni disagrees with Van Riper. And so then I asked Van Riper to come back on and comment on what Zinni said. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, um, it's it's great stuff. You'll thoroughly enjoy it. Um, and uh, have a great day. Mensa Brothers and I will be here tomorrow. And most importantly, don't be afraid to change somebody's life, man. Um, I can tell you that uh, there's no greater feeling, you know, when you go to sleep at night than uh, knowing that, you know, maybe you've helped change somebody's life uh, for the good. So, with that said, uh, General Anthony Tony Zinni, Vietnam veteran, former head of CENTCOM, former head man in Somalia when we went there. I'm not sure what he did in Desert Storm. What the hell did he do in Desert Storm? I don't even know. Anyway, um, in an awesome interview. And then after you hear General Zinni, you're going to hear General Van Riper come on and talk about General Zinni. So, interesting. So, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is the officer that I I affectionately call the burning bush because when he talks, I listen. All right, everybody knows how this, how this works. When we I bring a guest on, I try to play period music so that they'll feel comfortable, especially Vietnam guys, because they do a lot of twitching. And uh, joining me today is um, retired Marine Corps General Tony Zinni. Um, sir, first of all, uh, thanks for coming back on All Marine Radio. Um, really appreciate it. 
And I've been looking forward to this discussion about uh, discipline uh, yeah. here today. So thanks for doing this. Sure. All right. Are you a Rolling Stones guy? Uh, you know, I, I picked that. I, I kind go of... back before that. I'm a Four Seasons guy. Righteous Brothers. You know, that's my era. Four Seasons and the Righteous Brothers. Yeah. What is that? What is their famous song? Where they play? You never close your eyes. Oh, that's a Tom Cruise. That's all. It's identified with Maverick. That had to be a arrow to the heart. Yes. Well, you know, to me it was 50s, early 60s. Rock and roll died when the Beatles came. The good old stuff before that was what I listened to. I grew up in Philadelphia, you know. I mean, American Bandstand. You know what? That's how you learned how to dance before you went to the dance. People don't even know what American Bandstand is, but right, when you are when you had to go to a dance, you like you had to pay attention on American Bandstand to see how people were doing it. So you might actually get to get near a woman. And, uh, That's right. And that was the way that yeah. worked. All right. you, were, you were on one side of the gym, they were on the other side. <laughs> and that was a long walk over there? Yeah. And it, yeah. it was a longer walk back when she said no. So that's why you had to be a decent dancer. Your clothes had to fit right. So maybe yeah. so you wouldn't have to make the long walk back with your friends Most laughing. Most importantly, your hair had to be combed right. <laughs> the, uh, all right. What I want to do is I want to, I want to, not everybody knows you, right? So you know that. And, uh, and I want to, I want to talk, uh, I want to talk about you a little bit first and then, and then talk about discipline. So, um, born and raised where? Just outside of Philadelphia, right on the edge, uh, Milltown, uh, led into Philly, uh, basically blue collar community, everybody working in the mills and factories. How does the Marine Corps, I mean, you grew up in a, in a world that, a universe where I'm sure most of your teachers were veterans, everybody was a veteran. When uh, when you went to a Veterans Day parade or a Memorial Day parade, there was no men standing on the sidewalk. They were all marching in a parade, and and I, uh, I'm a little bit younger than you, but uh, um, what? how does the Marine Corps get on your radar? Well, first of all, what you said is, is very true. My father was a World War One vet. My cousins were all in World War Two. My brother was in the Korean War. Uh, my brother-in-laws were in the military. And, and so, you know, military service, uh, you know, to me was something you did. And uh, I kind of thought I was the last kid in my family, youngest. Uh, my father thought I he could afford the tuition to send me to school, but I had to work my way through college. And uh, uh, I, I thought that at some point, you know, like after I graduated, whatever, I'd have to do my military service. When I my first day on campus, uh, some some guy told me, uh, "You've got to register with the military. You have to be in the military while you're at school," which wasn't true, but I didn't know any differently. <laughs> you know, no one in my family had ever been in college. And so I was wandering around trying to figure out, I didn't know what an elective was, all this. I was supposed to be signing up for this stuff and had no idea what I was doing. And we took the lunch break and I was going to the cafeteria and I saw these three Marines in dress blues, the captain and two lieutenants, and they had this table with these brochures on it, you know, kind of in the cafeteria. And I went up to them. I thought maybe it was a place he'd sign up for this stuff. So I went up to them and I said, where do I sign? And they said, sign up for what? And I said, well, what do you got? And so they're explaining to me, you know, DLC program and all this stuff. And I said, look, man, I, I got uh, 45 minutes for lunch. I got to get back. Uh, so they said, okay. They put me in a room and I signed all these papers. And I, I, I didn't know, really understand what I had signed. When I came home, my, my dear Italian mother said, that was your first day of college. I said, well, I joined the Marines. She said, what? I thought you were going to 
go to school. I said, yeah, I joined the Marines. She said, well, how can you go to school and, and join the Marines? And she said, and, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> so she said, where do your father come from? So my, my, old, my brother was way older than I was. He was about 16, 17 years older. So when he came home from work, uh, my brother said, do you sign anything? I said, yeah, I signed a lot of stuff. He said, let me see what you signed. So he explained it to me. <laughs> He was in the Army in the Korean War. He was with the 25th Division in the Korean War. My, you know, my father was in the Spad Squad in World War One. I. I had a cousin in the 84th Division at the Battle of the Bulge and another one that was a communicator in the B-25. And uh, I had, uh, you know, my brother-in-laws were, one of my, one of my brother-in-laws was in the Marine Corps, so his stories, you know, really appealed to me. So when I saw those Marines, I thought, well, you know, just... If I got a joint, this looks like a good outfit. I like the uniform. Yeah, I could get a date. I could get a date. You know what? You know what's funny? How many? How many Marines that like those uniforms? I saw a guy who walked into our cafeteria. I, and I said, who is that? I didn't know shit about the Marine Corps. And uh, it's it's hilarious. Woody Williams, Medal of Honor recipient on Iwo Jima. He tell, that's a, he's growing up in West Virginia. Recruiter sees him, and he says, I don't know what that guy is, but I want to be that. Yeah. And uh, funny. Uh, so, all right, so how do you uh, you go to you go to the basic school? How do you de- how do you decide you're going to be a grunt? Well, you know, in, in uh, the PLC program, you know, it, it became pretty clear to me that uh, the infantry was the place to be. Uh, I really got fascinated by uh, everything I was uh, exposed to, uh, you know, uh, both increments of PLC. We had phenomenal uh, platoon sergeants. And, uh, I just got impressed. And in the, those days when I went through, uh, all the drill, all the platoon sergeants were drill instructors that came up from Paris Island to put us through the, the, the two six-week increments. So these were... You know, these were the drill instructors that everybody ever heard about, and uh, uh, they were so impressive. And then, you know, when we were beginning to learn about what the Marine Corps was all about, the emphasis was every Marine a rifle, and so basically, it was a lot of training out there in the in the field skills and the tactics and weapons. And I, I just took a liking to this stuff, and I thought, you know, when the time comes, that's what I want to do. So when I Graduated, went to basic school. That was my whole focus was getting to be an infantry platoon commander. The uh, all right, you, you do that, and what year is that? Sixty-five. Sixty-five. Yeah. All right, so you do that in sixty-five. Vietnam's uh, been going. Um, where do you go? Uh, well, why don't you walk us through your career, and then I want to yeah. come back to well, Vietnam. Give us a. Well, uh, sixty-five is when the we were actually in basic school. When the Marine, Marines landed in Troop 2I, so you know there've been some Marine helicopter squadrons and some advisors, but the major, obviously, commitment of ground forces was in 65. So they went in while we were in basic school, uh, and then we were told, uh, you know, Vietnam. No one, no one thought that they were going to stay there. The original commitment was to provide security and sort of jump start it, but you know everybody would be out. But obviously things were beginning to happen. That same year, the Marines went into Santa Domingo right. uh, and, and, uh, because of the problems down there. And so things were beginning to happen, so everybody was getting excited about it. But we were told, you won't go to uh, Vietnam or places like that. You know, you'll go to a 
uh, another organization before you would get to that uh, thing that continued building up. So my orders were to the 2nd Marine Division, and I reported in the 1-6, uh, Alpha 1-6 of the platoon command. All right, so take us through. So now All right. I want to stop there, and then if you just take us through your your billets in your career, then I want to come back to talking about lessons learned from your different stops along the way, if you don't mind. Okay, well, infantry platoon commander, uh, I went from there to the infantry training regiment. As a second lieutenant, I commanded the, uh, an infantry training uh, company. Uh, went back to 1-6, uh, commander of the platoon, the XO, and, and company commander, uh, and then got orders to the Marine Advisor Unit in Vietnam, went to Army Special Warfare School at Fort Bragg, uh, learned language, counterinsurgency operations, counter-guerrilla tactics, weapons and all, uh, with Special Forces School, and then over to Vietnam, and I was a battalion advisor there, uh, Came back, went to the basic school, uh, taught uh, scouting and patrolling and uh, counterinsurgency operations, and eventually headed that section. Uh, spent time as a platoon commander at basic school. Went to AWS, went back to Vietnam as a company commander. Uh, got wounded, sent to Okinawa. Uh, was a company commander, two companies and. Third Force Service Regiment, so I had an H&S company and a, a guard company and, and even a bulk fuel company. Uh, and then I went back to Camp Lejeune to 1-8 with a company commander again, uh, became the CG's aide, Second Marine Division. Then I ran a special school we had set up that was uh, called the Infantry Training School, which basically was uh, taught advanced infantry tactics and what was called in those days special operations, which wasn't the same as today. It was jungle, mountain, desert, and uh, cold weather operations. And went from there to headquarters Marine Corps, and a tour of manpower, command of staff college, down to Camp Lejeune, was a battalion S3, battalion XO, battalion commander, uh, 2-8, and then... Uh, Regimental uh, XO, Ace Marines, came back to Quantico at Command Staff College, was a uh, tactics instructor there. Went from there to headquarters Marine Corps and, uh, in Ops. Uh, ran the uh, uh, Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict Anti-Terrorism Section in Ops. Uh, had completed National War College. Went on the Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Studies Group. Okinawa as a regimental commander, then a MU commander. Uh, came back to Quantico as a deputy, uh, but then ended up in Somalia as a director of operations for the Joint Task Force, Combined Task Force. Uh, came back and went to uh, one MEF as a commander, and then from one MEF as a deputy commander of CENTCOM, then the commander of CENTCOM. So that's... That's the stretch. The um, all right. I want to <clears throat> so back to the, back to the start. Um, you grew up. I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I think the step for you into the Marine Corps, uh, coming from an Italian family in the culture you, you grew up in, uh, wasn't a huge step. And and I look at young people today. They grew up in a culture that doesn't do adversity, doesn't do discipline, doesn't do consequences, and then they step into the United States military. What 
what formulated your ideas of, of discipline uh, as a young as a young officer at the at the company level uh, in the early part of your career? Where do, who, who gave you or where did you get your ideas about discipline? Yeah, I, I grew up in Catholic education with a bunch of nuns who put drill instructors to shame. <laughs> So discipline was and understanding the concept of discipline were no problem, uh, and and uh, it, you know it was a major part of your education when you worked with the the Stern sisters and uh, throughout uh, your grade school and high school, uh, and I think also then of course I went to a Catholic college in Villanova, uh, and and the same kind of values and uh, you know beliefs self discipline control you know. Uh, that was there in my life, and of course, I, I had a very strong family. Uh, uh, and and uh, being the youngest kid, I certainly was at the bottom end of the discipline chain. You know, when it came to that, and uh, I certainly understood the concepts of uh, what you're responsible for. I could see the values in in my family, in my faith, in my education system. It was all there, and the whole matter of discipline. And I would emphasize it's not a matter of discipline. Sometimes people think of discipline as punishment. That right. was not it. Right. It, it. It's a matter, of, and I remember that the nuns used to tell us the most important aspect of discipline is self-control. And it's very difficult, especially when you're a teenager. But what you've got to master is self-control, self-discipline. Uh, and then the second thing, which I think really hit me, was you've got to have a code, a set of values. And before you come into Marine Corps, that needs to be established in some way. And I think in the times I grew up and in the areas I grew up and, and you know, in, in the neighborhoods I grew up and the whole system, that was there. I mean, it was a, everybody had a code. Uh, what I worry about today, the code isn't there. I, I had this conversation with General Kruak when he established the crucible. He called me up one day and said, uh, you know, he said, I'm going to relook at uh, recruit training. And I said, geez, General, you know, that's like the Holy Grail. I mean, you have to be careful if you start to go with it. He said, no. He said, you know, the whole concept is based around the idea of young men and women come in with, a, you know, a set of values, a code. He says, we may not be seeing that now. We may have to establish that in some way. And I think the whole concept that he had a great idea about the crucible was to establish this sense of camaraderie and cohesion and uh, because maybe it wasn't there. Maybe it came from dysfunctional families, maybe families that really didn't, you know, didn't function as a unit. They maybe didn't get through their schooling or their education and all, a sense of discipline, a sense of values or code not being set. And so this whole idea that we have to relook at, at, at not just saying we assume you come in with a code and our job is to hone it and polish it, we have to establish it. And and I thought he was right on on that. I hadn't thought about that, but I began to see as I looked at you know, what was happening in society, uh, you know, in our education system, in our family structures, and uh, we were beginning to see that this sort of value and code system wasn't there. The, um, you go to Vietnam. So, so, so you're a Royal Platoon commander, and, and, and you, the job you hold as a junior officer then you you go to, to to Vietnam. How does your tour as an advisor affect your thoughts on the relationship between the individual and small unit discipline and then and then and also to combat effectiveness? Well, the advisory tour was probably the most uh, 
I think, fascinating and educating tour of duty I had in the Marine Corps because, first of all, I was thrown into a whole different culture. I, you know, I didn't see another American very often. I was wearing the uniform of the Vietnamese Marines, uh, and, and we were going all over the South Vietnam because they were the National Strike Force. Uh, and, and I was able to, you know, you're not in command of anything, but you're a key part of the organization. And I was able to watch the, uh, in, you know, in time of war, watching platoon commanders and company commanders. And I saw a lot of them because I, I moved around from battalion to battalion and I was in the field the whole time I was out there. And I saw so many different leadership styles. I mean, obviously these aren't Americans. It's different cultural aspects of the way they approach things. Uh, but I watched them, and, and I, I could see uh, the different approaches, the different personalities, the different characteristics of leaders. And I began to, you know, you find some that are just uh, so amazingly head and shoulders above the others. One of our company commanders in one of the battalions was 55 years old. He had fought in World War II. He had fought in the Indochina War with the French uh, forces. And he had been a company commander all that time. And he was an old, hard-ass, uh, legendary guy. Marched at the head of the National Day Parade every year. You know, he was a legend. He had he'd been wounded nine times. Uh, actually, he was wounded while I was there. And and the guy, uh, I, I just watched how he handled troops, how he, how much his men respected him and, and how much they loved him. And, you know, with the years of experience he had and what he had learned from it, and I really enjoyed sitting around talking to him, you know, and, and sort of getting a feel for where he had come from. Uh, so it was a great experience because of the, the culture and the ability to be there, be involved. You're in a combat situation, but you're not in command. I mean, you're advising and you're, you know, basically our job is to get them fire support and make sure logistics worked and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so that was a great learning experience because, you know, it made me reflect in history when it used to be that uh, that we would send observers when there was combat. So when you think about the Civil War, there were French and British observers and all. Uh, and actually the Vietnamese Marines were formed by a colonel named Croziat, who was a U.S. Marine colonel, spoke fluent French, who was sent out to observe uh, French operations during the French Indochina War. And so he had a whole different concept of how to advise based on what he had seen and what he had uh, observed. And that's why the Vietnamese Marine Advisory Unit was so different than the others out there. The, um, so did, did your thoughts about discipline and small unit discipline change? Or, or based on that event, I would imagine they well, probably crystallized a great deal seeing it. Yeah, it, i got to say, going back to Camp Lejeune before I went out there, you know, my time at Camp Lejeune, I was blessed that when I first hit the deck out there, I had a fantastic platoon sergeant. I had a staff sergeant who had been in the Korean War, had a bronze star from the Korean War. He was a tough old piece of leather. And the first day I reported in, he said, uh, you know, Lieutenant, if you've got some time, I'd like to sit down and talk over about the, about the platoon and all and, and, and how we're going to run it. And I said, sure. So we sat down, and, and the first thing he said to me, he says, you know, my job is to make sure every individual Marine in this platoon meets your standards, your expectations, your goals for the unit. And he said, but I have a secondary job, he said, and it's to make you a better officer. 
And he said, if you'll allow me, uh, I'd like to offer, based on my experience, he said, you come with the education. He said, I have a lot of experience, and I really think I can offer you a lot, you know, to, to help you in your first experience in, in leadership here. And I said, well, hell yes. And that, it was amazing the things he told me. He said, you know, you're the officer, and they're going to respect you. Now, in those days, you have to remember Camp Lejeune, uh, there weren't rooms. It was open squad base. So everybody's in a rack and a bunk, including your squad leaders, your sergeants, everybody. Uh, and, and there were only two people married in the platoon. Platoon sergeant and my guide. Uh, the rest of them are all living there, you know, in an open squad bay. But he told me things like, when you come into, the, you tell me before you go in the squad bay because I want to go in and make sure it's squared away, call them to attention. He said, if we hold a formation and you inspect weapons, he said, if you look at the weapon and it doesn't meet your standard, you turn to me and say, Staff Sergeant Paul, this weapon is unsatisfactory. He says, because I will have inspected it ahead of time. And so you, you should address it to me. He said, when a Marine has a problem, he said, let the uh, fire team leader have his first shot at handling it, then the squad leader, then me, then you. Don't jump right in. And he was giving me all these, you know, uh, this is what the officer does, this is what the staff NCO does, this is what the NCO does. And then he, he talked to me about how we develop NCOs, how we develop the credibility. And I remember one thing that stuck with me uh, from that. Uh, our platoon was on mess duty, so, I mean, all but the NCOs were off on mess duty. And Sergeant Ball used to hold uh, the MCI courses. He would get all the NCOs together, the fire team leaders and the squad leaders, and they would all work on MCI courses together. So I came into the to the rec room, and they had maps. They were doing uh, map reading in, in, the, uh, in one of the courses in MCI, and they had it all spread out on the pool table. And I remember that in his office, he had every MCI course that was ever produced. He had his diplomas all over the place. And I knew he had taken this course probably 50 times before. But he was making the, the squad leaders and the fire team leaders work through this problem. And he said, Lieutenant, would you come over a minute? He said, we got a, uh, we're really stumped on this one uh, question here. Could you help us out? Well, the first thing that struck me is he knew it. I mean, he was damn good at, uh, at land navigation. Second of all, he was taking an opportunity to make me look good. In other words, when I came over, we went through the issue, we went through the problem and everything else, and we, we worked on it and, you know, helped them all out. And he said, Lieutenant, I want to thank you. That was really helpful. Really appreciate your, your, your leadership. And I thought as I walked away, he, he did this to make me look good in front of the platoon, you know, uh, or in front of the leadership in the platoon and, and to enhance my credibility. So, I, you know, when I, when I went off to Vietnam, I had come from, experiences like that. When I was the commander of the Infantry Training Regiment Company, I had a first sergeant, first sergeant Ballou, who had landed in Inuitok and Roy Namor, World War II. I had gunnies, uh, you know, tremendous gunnies, you know, Korean War veteran guys. Uh, and these guys were the rocks that you learned from. You know, and, and, and the way the, the structure worked is, you know, you were worried about the unit, the organization, the goals and everything. They handled all the other issues and the individual things that went down. Uh, and, and the amount of respect and camaraderie and 
you know, mutual respect between NCO staff and NCOs and the young officers like me were tremendous. I mean, you know, this was the, the Marine Corps before Vietnam. The um, Now, you go to Vietnam, and you, you, you have that kind of upbringing. You go there. You come back. You're gonna you you're getting ready to go back, and I I want to play a couple audio cuts for you. One is as uh, I think happens right as you land in Vietnam, and uh, hey sir, just an aside. I'm not gonna play the audio cuts. I'm gonna ask you the question, and you can respond, and I'll put the audio sure. cuts in there. But you know know the ones I'm talking about. The first one I'm gonna play for you, sir, is uh, you're talking about a um, uh, on uh, you 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 meet a lieutenant as you land in Vietnam going back as a company commander. You're both going to the same company, and uh, and then when you 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 wind up getting the company office, and he talks about um, he talks about wanting to inspect rifles. Can can you can you tell that story? Uh, or I'm going to play the audio, and then you comment on it, and then um, and almost uh, let's see it would have been 20 years later probably 22 years later after the event you include that in a PME that you're giving on leadership that I saw and that's where this this audio comes from so explain 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 the significance of this to you and about moral courage yeah. you were talking about well you know when I got when I got there and was told I would you know take command of uh, Alpha 1-5 um, I get, you know, checked in, I was doing a turnover with the, uh, outgoing company commander. And, uh, it, just as I had arrived, there were a number of lieutenants that had come into the company, two of them, three new ones. And even the ones that had been there, I had been instructor at basic school, so they all knew me from basic school. So when I got there, one of the lieutenants had checked in exactly the same time as I did, went through the whole thing. So I was in the company area, and I was, uh, we, you know, the, the company area we had in, uh, where our base camp was, we had these sea huts. And I was walking through the sea huts, and I saw one of the new lieutenants, and he was talking to his platoon sergeant. And he said to the platoon sergeant, uh, tomorrow morning I want to get a formation, everybody in formation. He said, I like to look at their gear, their weapons, and uh, and, and do an inspection and obviously introduce myself to the platoon. So the platoon sergeant said, sir, uh, you know, we don't do formations or inspections and this is Vietnam, you know, we're, we're this is war. And, and that's hit me because of course the first thing I'm thinking, there's going to be formations and inspections. You know? And I wanted to see how the lieutenant handled it. So the lieutenant says, hey, sergeant, there will be an inspection tomorrow. So are you there? Yes. Yeah. So there will be an inspection tomorrow, so, uh, you know, please, you know, make sure they're out line. So I wanted to see what happened. So I uh, I went out to where the, the formation was in the inspection the next morning, and in, in a place where, you know, they couldn't see me, and I wanted to see how the lieutenant handled this. So he starts down the line, he gets about the third guy, fourth guy, and he says, he says, these weapons are horrible, they're in terrible condition. You know, they need to be cleaned much better than this. And the platoon sergeant says, you know, sir, uh, you know, we don't do boot camp inspections here. You, you, you know, this isn't boot camp. And the, uh, the lieutenant says, there's no such thing as a boot camp inspection than any other inspection. There's only a clean weapon. And he says, call out the, the troops, get back in, clean the weapons, and you come tell me when they're ready. 
So I could have kissed him, you know. I, I thought, just Lieutenant, you know, because he's right out, he's coming into his first platoon. He's right out of basic school, you know, and everything he's been taught that he's ready to put into play, he gets challenged on. And, of course, that can be intimidating because, you know, this is Vietnam. This is a war zone. You know, he's not coming out with any experience. These guys have all been in firefights and been there. Uh, and, and, and the platoon sergeant is playing on that experience to try to intimidate him in some way. And so I'm thinking, this is the first real challenge this lieutenant has. And, and he stood up to it, and he was a great lieutenant. I mean, actually, he was the one who was by my side when I was wounded, and, uh, you know, it was magnificent his first firefight, so. The, um, all right, the second cut is, uh, is you talking about scalps. Explain that. Uh, yeah, I saw that. What, what was that about? I don't remember. You said that um, the the cut says um, you were out in the field, and there was guys, uh, Marines that showed you some pictures, and then a, and a Marine that had a scalp inside of his cover, and and you you in the quote you say. I, I yeah. grabbed that stuff and I said, "This shit'll yeah. never happen again." I burned the cover. I burned the picture. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so ex- explain explain that. Will you explain that story? And yeah. then, and then, why why did you include it in your leadership uh, section of combat concept? Yeah, well, yeah this this uh, Marine uh, Lance Corporal came up to me, and this again, just taking over the company, and he he was really nervous, and he said, "Sir, sir, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you something." And he had these pictures of uh, dead Viet, Viet Cong, and, uh, and and some of them were were women, which was not uncommon. I knew that from my previous story. You know, and, right. uh, the first time I got on a firefight where we ended up, uh, uh, you know, with the bodies on the over and seeing a number of women in there, uh, and and they had obviously, you know, the the, the, the women were the bodies were. Uh, Exposed and everything else, and show me these pictures. And and, and I looked at this, and I said, uh, "Where the hell did you get these?" And he said, "Well, this, sir, this was from the firefight that had happened, you know." So, so I said, "Give me those goddamn things." And I ripped them up, tore them up, and I looked at them, and I said, "This will never happen in this or in this company again." And and if I find any more of this stuff, you know, people can pay price for it. And. Uh, he looked at me, and what I saw was a, uh, a sense of relief. I mean, what I saw in him is this is what he had believed was wrong, and what this shouldn't be happening. But you know, he was, it, it was like, well, it's happening out here. Um, my my uh, sort of framework of so what is right and wrong is getting confused. And he needed to hear that uh, what he believed and where he came from in his code, this was wrong. And he needed to hear somebody say that. I, and, you know, it, it was almost like he was thanking me uh, for saying that and for doing that. He needed that reassurance. And so when I see things like this, some of the things that go that go on that we've had, everything from marble grade to, you know, pissing on bodies and everything else, yeah, what you gotta, you wonder where the officers are. You know where, where the staff NCOs are. I mean, the, this is where you got to make sure that this person's sense of right and wrong, everything he's been taught, just because he's in this horrific, traumatic environment, 
you know, he can't lose that moral compass. And you've got to make sure that you keep reassuring that everything he believes in, everything he was brought up in believing in, is still right. And despite the horrors of what he's seeing, he's got to be able to uh, to keep on that track, you know, to, to make sure that he believes that the leadership understands and is with him in this in some way. So, 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 so what do you say to to somebody who's going to follow in that lieutenant's footsteps? And he's going to his moral authority, as you said, is going to be immediately challenged by, "Hey, this is combat. We don't do it like that here." And then, you know, and and I would tell you, I mean, how many different officers or leaders do you think saw those pictures, saw scalps, and uh, and 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 either laughed or looked the other way, or, or you know, they didn't want to they didn't want to have that confrontation. There. So, what do you say to young leaders when they get? What do they do when confronted with? That's not the way we do it in combat. Well, you, uh, what you've got to do is you, you've got to you got to trust in your training. You got to trust in your belief systems. You got to trust in your sense of what's right and wrong. And you got you're the one that's supposed to stand for all that. Uh, and you know, you and the staff and COs. And one of the problems we had in Vietnam was, uh, you know, we, we made uh, officers out of uh, the experienced and, and quality staff NCOs. So we raped the ranks of the staff NCOs, moved them up as temporary officers, mm-hmm. and then compounded the problem in that we had quickie promotions. You know, uh, you, you arrived in Vietnam, and, and you could go from uh, uh, POC or Lance Corporal to Corporal and Sergeant in a hurry, and there was no NCO academy or anything else. And so... We ended up with a, a large number of staff NCOs and NCOs that had moved up too quickly, did not have the benefit of not, not of course, not experience, but also uh, the academies and the education and that sort of thing, too. So a lot was falling to the lieutenants uh, and the captains. And, you know, when you looked at some of the things that happened over there, uh, you know, whether it's the me lies or some of the, and we all know the stories out there, uh, you know, the, the officers had felt to them to make sure this stuff didn't happen. You know, you're talking about 17, 18, 19-year-old uh, young men that got thrown into something that is so horrific. Uh, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading and, and uh, about Pacific and World War II. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the enemy there, uh, the atrocities committed by the enemy, uh, uh, you know, when the, when the Marines first saw that, you know, uh, uh, prisoners that were uh, surrendering weren't really going to surrender. They were going to you know, pull out a grenade, pull themselves up. Uh, they saw the way POWs were treated and everything. I mean, their whole sense of right and wrong got challenged. And uh, there was a time I remember reading where the senior leadership in the Marine Corps, was, they were getting requests to say, we should not take prisoners. We should just shoot them because it's too dangerous. And uh, there was a debate about this because they had so many incident, incidents that uh, like this had happened. But they didn't. They wouldn't come down and say shoot all prisoners. They said, you know, we have to be extra careful. We have to be aware of this. We have to do this. But we aren't going to go to the point where saying we, we we condone shooting prisoners. Now, the prisoners have been shot. Sure, you know, obviously we know that. Uh, but there was not going to be an official condoning of this sort of thing. Or, uh, and, and so in all conflict, in all war, you're going to find these sorts of problems, you know, where the, the moral the moral and, and ethical and even legal parts of what you should and could do get fuzzy or get confusing. And you're asking people with no experience in this,
in terms of what right or wrong is, and they need reassurance. They need support. They need to know that just because you're in this environment, that doesn't mean that you're, you're sort of waiving all these things or there's sort of a, a, a way that your belief system and your values and your quotes don't apply. You can't do that. I, you know, I, I know uh, when we went to enhance interrogation techniques and all that stuff, we really muddied the waters. I mean, this is about who we are as opposed to uh, who the other guy is. Uh, you know, it, and, and you, you know, you can make all sorts of hypothetical cases as to, well, what would you do in this case? Well, what would you do if this happened? Well, you know, my answer is don't compromise who you are. Don't compromise your values. Don't compromise your code. Don't compromise your, uh, your belief systems. Because you'll spend the rest of your life, uh, uh, just regretting, uh, what you did. Uh, and that's going to be hard to tell your kids about that. Well, you know, sir, um, I do a thing called post-traumatic winning that talks about, you know, living with, you know, with traumatic events in your life. And, and, I, and, I, and one of the things I talk about is we don't teach keep your honor clean very well. You know, you don't keep your honor clean for the Marine Corps. You keep your honor clean for you because you've got to put your head on your pillow for the rest of your life. And it's either through your negligence, your laziness, or your own stupidity, right, all of which you're culpable for, somebody else gets killed, wounded, or maimed. Nobody can lift that burden from you. Nobody can. You'll know the truth about whether it was your fault or not. And, and all the different things, whether you're on liberal with somebody or out doing operations and people want to take shortcuts. And God forbid something bad happens because if it does and you don't do what you're supposed to do, you don't do what the song says, which is really odd. Do you think they knew, sir, all the way back then? We, nobody knows who the hell wrote the song. So you can't ask them, but there was probably a lot of cool shit you could put in the song after First to Fight for Right and Freedom and to blow their ass away. I mean, you can put some cool stuff in there, but we put it and to keep your honor clean. Nobody else has a lyric like that. And so, I mean, I find it very interesting, and, and I don't know that we that we teach it well enough. Well, well, push it forward to the early 90s when the trend came for organizations to establish their core values. And, you know, we said, you know, honor, courage, and commitment. Actually, at the time when we were going through which what they would be, I wanted honor, courage, and discipline. Uh, and, and uh, uh, but commitment came in there because I thought your core values. When you hear those core values, they, they immediately should come to mind. United States Marine, and obviously honor, and courage say that. And I thought discipline says it better than commitment. You know, commitment sounded like a '90s you know relationship term or whatever. Uh, but if, you know, when you look at a Marine and you and you hear honor, courage, commitment, you relate it right away. And uh, to me, the, you know, if we believe in that, if that is a core value instead of values, then you got to live it. You can't. It's just something we put out uh, and has no meaning once you march onto a battlefield. You know, and, and, and you can't be intimidated by those that say, well, you're naive, you know. So I've been in plenty of firefights, and I had three bullets that went in for me, and one's still there. And, you know, so I, I don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make you more macho. It doesn't make you a better guy. And, uh, you know, uh, your sea stories don't justify violating your, your core values. Interesting. What's When you look at the discipline of a unit, uh What's the role of the officer? What's the role of the staff non-commissioned officer and, and the NCO? Do they all have the same role? Do their roles differ? No. 
they, they have very different roles. And I think one of the things that happened to us after Vietnam, because like I said before, uh, the NCO and staff NCO Corps, we had really abused on that war for a lot of different reasons. Uh, we were finding lieutenants and officers trying to do the role of the staff NCO and the NCO, uh, and, and that, that doesn't work. Uh, we, of course, got that back uh, when we went through the professional development of NCOs and staff NCOs and the development of the academies and the, and the courses, and we went through uh, the, the standards that we had set for promotion and obviously recruited the all-volunteer military force at a higher level. Initially, uh, we got back those kinds of NCOs and staff NCOs that I saw when we first came in, that were the, the 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 World War II Korea guys, you know, the backbone of the core. Uh, you know, I, I I know you 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 know I put out when I was a regimental commander a letter to all my uh, officers and staff and COs and NCOs what the roles were to spell it out carefully. And in my mind, I go back to what Staff Sergeant Ball told me in my first platoon. His job was to make each or each and every individual Marine who met the standards needed to achieve the unit and organizational goals. My job was to set those standards and goals for the unit. So my job was to understand how to fight that platoon, how to make sure that platoon lived up to everything it was supposed to be. His job was to make sure each and he and the other NCOs to make sure each individual filled his role and lived up to it and could do it. So he had a he had to, to make sure the parts were in place I had to make sure the whole was functioning and doing what it needed to do and had the standards uh, set for us to achieve our missions. Was that the biggest challenge in, in, in retrospect um, coming out of Vietnam was, was you know, Colonel West Fox, he's one of those guys who, who you were talking about. He was a, I, I want to say, a, he was a gunny, he was a first sergeant select. And, uh, and Colonel Barnum tells the funniest story about uh, um, calling up the uh, the new CEO of Alpha 19 because he heard some grenades going off down the hill of, uh, around his fire base. He had never met him, but he, he called him up to his tent to chew his ass, and uh, in walks the real life John Wayne. You know, <laughs> right? And said, "You if you wanted to order a Marine from Central Casting, you order West Fox." That's and, it. And, and 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 Colonel Barnum tells a funny like he walks in and he looks at him. He goes, "Who the hell are you?" Yeah. I'm Lieutenant Fox, sir. <laughs> he says, what the hell's going on down that hill, Lieutenant Fox? Well, we... And he tells this funny story about, uh, you know, we we don't get any fresh water down there. So my guys go to bathe, we get water, and then we throw a couple grenades in the stream, and then we and we harvest the fish, and we, they have some protein. And he said, well, yeah. shit, don't be afraid to tell people what you're doing down there. And it started, uh, obviously, a lifetime friendship. But... but um, Coming out of Vietnam and all the stories that, uh, you know, General Ben Riper talk, has talked about on, on doing these interviews, General Mattis has talked about, um, was it the decimation of the staff NCOs? I want to say there was almost 5,000 staff NCOs taken out of the staff NCO Corps. What do you remember about discipline in that period uh, of well, time in the Marine Corps? Well, you, you have to remember what was happening at that time. I mean, uh, we had uh, racial unrest. The, the drug culture was flourishing. Uh, we were inflicted with programs like Project 100,000. We were taking 100,000 of the lowest mental category, you know, another McNamara brain fart, you know. And uh, and, and, and so th there were quality issues. 
uh, I went through what was happening to the NCOs and staff NCOs. You know, we uh, we were making the, uh, the highest quality uh, officers. They were moving up the ranks too quickly because we needed to uh, expand and fill uh, so quickly. Uh, and when we came out of Vietnam and we looked back at, at all this, and we said, we've got to change, you know, we've got to transform. And then the ideas started to come out that what impressed me was the thinking was bold. We're going to go to an all-volunteer military. First thing we heard is screams, you'll never man an all-volunteer military. Uh, you have to have the draft. Uh, you need the draft. And, and then we said, no, we think we can do it. And then the second thing we said is there's going to be uh, a set of standards, high school diploma, you know, clean uh, drugs, no no drugs. We're going to you know, demand a certain mental category, a certain fitness and, and, and physical conditioning requirement. And everybody said, you can't do that, you can't do it. And then we said we're going to revamp the, the military education system. Uh, you know, we are going to educate at every level. We're going to put a tremendous amount of investment into NCO education, staff NCO education, even officer education. We're going to value education like we did before. If you're busting your butt at night and getting a, a degree, that's going to count for something. Uh, so, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, we had people like General Gray and others talking about, I, I, you know, you've got to develop that brain as well as the other muscles. Then we started to relook at our entire philosophy and the way we fought. So then, you know, and, and of course this generated the whole maneuver warfare movement and uh, the debates through the mid late 80s. And uh, uh, you know, we have to move away from a attrition warfare dependence on technology. We got to approach uh, the operational art with a different mindset. Uh, you know, we got to value our thinkers more. We, we've got to put more emphasis on conceptualizing. Uh, you know, the Quantico changed from being a, a requirements-based system, uh, you know, based on doctrine. They changed it to, you know, it's going to be based on concepts and, uh, and concept development. Uh, but the other services were doing the same thing, you know. And uh, we did, the biggest thing I thought that doesn't get much attention is accountability. Uh, you know, with the MSTP, BCTP, and the Army. Uh, the first time I, I went to look at the Army's uh, BCTP program, it was down at uh, Fort Bragg, and it was 18th Airborne Corps. Hey, so and was this, tell, tell everybody what, what that acronym stands for. Well, it's a, a battle concept. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's testing people on their tactics and operational capability, and uh, it, it basically seeing if you know your shit, you know, in right. war fighting. And, and the decision was made starting with the Army and then all services followed. This will go from the core level on down. This is not just going to be testing, you know, companies and platoons. And uh, the first thing that came out was there's no whining. Uh, you're going to, you know, we're going to empower the evaluators on this thing to really put it to you. And, you know, you're going to, whether you're a three-star general or a lieutenant, you're going to stand there and listen and, and take it on board. So when I went down to see the first one of these, uh, I was at headquarters Marine Corps, and I got sent down to, to look at this. And I, it was General Luck, Army three-star at that time, later on four-star commander, Korean forces. And he was regarded as one of the you know, most brilliant uh, operational uh, officers in the Army. And uh, this group of evaluators, colonels, got up and just 
hammered them. I mean, hammered the Corps and all this stuff. And I thought, holy cow, it, it, you know, it's a three-star general, and he's got division commanders there, two stars. I said, they're going to come back and eat these colonels lunch and lieutenant colonels. And I watched General Luck saying, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. That is all good stuff. That is a superb critique. And I want to go through every one of those and show you, you know, how we, we, we didn't, you know, what we did wrong here, what we did wrong there, what we should have done here. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I, I can't believe it. You know what it took me back to when I was a CG's aide in 2nd Marine Division? The general at the time was General Haynes. And he told me when he, when he selected me as his aide, he said, I want you to be my operational aide. He said, let the, at that time you had a lieutenant and aide too. He said, let the lieutenant handle the social stuff and all that stuff. That's, he he said, said, sir, that's Fred Haynes? Fred Haynes, yeah. Wow. And he, he said, I, he said, uh, he said, I picked you for a certain reason. He says, you're an AWS grad. You had command of a company in combat. You had command of a company in 2nd Marine Division. He had this big list. He said, when we go out to the field, he said, after we watch whatever we see in the field or we go out to an exercise, I want you to sit down with me and tell me what you saw. And I want you to be honest with me. And, you know, so we did, we did this and I gave him my feedback. And one day, I, I, it, I was just every, we'd go out to these battalions, and it was clear to me we were seeing people that did had, you know, at, at battalion commander level, regimental commander level, and they did not know what the hell they were doing. And I finally said out of frustration to them one day, sir, I said, uh, yeah, uh, these guys are horrible. I mean, it's like they never had a tactics course. You know? And he turned to me and he said, have you ever heard of a battalion commander or a regimental commander getting relieved of duty? for being incompetent in terms of his, his, his tactical ability or operational ability? And I said, no, sir. He says, you ever hear one get relieved for administrative reasons or personal conduct? And I said, yes. And he said, well, see, there's our problem. You know. And so I remembered that. And now I was seeing where you were going to get held accountable. You know. And, and of course, in the Marine Corps, we developed the MSDP, the CACS program. I mean, when you went out and did these things, everybody knew how you did. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and of course, the MSDP guys gave you the evaluation. So, I mean, you couldn't hide your shit. It's out there for everybody to, to see. Uh, and, and so, you, no one could fake it anymore. Uh, and, and I thought that, going back to this is all part of the transformation in the post Vietnam era. Uh, yeah, and, that, and and I think, you know, obviously, we lost, I think, I, you know, I probably was one of the last Vietnam guys uh, in the senior leadership role. Because I think afterwards we began to just see a few officers that caught the end of the war, maybe, as a platoon commander right. uh, in four-star ranks. But then, you know, basically, Iraq and Afghanistan, the senior leadership, the Vietnam experience was gone, right. and the Vietnam experience burned stuff into our souls that we didn't have there anymore. The um, I, I want to read a, 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 a section of your letter, uh, the letter that you wrote about the staff non-commissioned officer. The um, and I, let me ask you: uh, in, Do you have? Do you still have? I, I got a copy of this sent to me by somebody. Um, do you still have copies of the the one you wrote about the NCO and the officer? Oh yeah. Yes, okay. and, and I get asked for it every once in a while. Uh, my son, who's a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, is actually out in Afghanistan now, and and he sent me a, 
email and said, hey, my sergeant major wants your letter to, to the staff and seals and officers and ninth marines. I said, Jesus, I didn't realize that was still floating around, but I know the staff and seal academy at Quantico and several other places that, you know, were using it. So, uh, I couldn't believe that it's still alive. All right. Well, I need to get a cut. But you wrote one about the role of officers and the role of the NCO as well? Yeah. Well, I've, it's one letter. It's okay. One, it's All right. All right. And, and I did it. Uh, this had been bugging me for a while. I, I, I think as a hangover from everything we've talked about Vietnam, I was seeing lieutenants come out and, and they were not giving their platoon sergeants kind of the uh, the ability to fulfill their role in the platoon. The lieutenants were trying to do everything. Right. You know, the Marine had an issue and a problem, boom, right away, so lieutenants. And, and I was seeing now that the plot, we had regained the quality of the NCOs and staff NCOs, and this was bothered me. It was, it was, it was happening, and I wanted to find a way to uh, get this sort of mutual respect, you know, what I saw and what I gained from my platoon sergeant. So I wrote the letter to all my officers and uh, uh, and staff NCOs and NCOs, and I had a phenomenal sergeant major out in Ninth Marines. He'd been wounded nine and had nine Purple Hearts, so he was uh, uh, Sergeant Major Grochevsky. Holy and, shit! Uh, and, and and I said, you know, I really want to instill this. And then I started running officer school two days a week, and I would pull the officers out uh, away from their uh, units. For officer school, which ran uh, a half day and into the into the night, and I started to hear the complaints. You know, you know, sir, officer school's great, but you know, we got to be with our units. That's just what you got platoon sergeants for, and that's what you got, you know, first sergeants and gunnies for. And uh, I have one incident that I want to tell you about. I had this lieutenant come up to me uh, after one of the officer schools, and he said, "Sir," he said, "You know." Yeah, it was a rotational battalion, so they had just come in. He says, sir, uh, I, I like the officer school, don't get me wrong, but he said, i I, I got to be with my platoon. I mean, you know, if I'm not down there, things aren't going to get done. And so I said, just bear with me, uh, you know, Lieutenant. And he came back to me a couple weeks later, and he said, sir, I want to come back and say I was wrong. He said, you know, after I told you that, I went back down to my platoon area, and I, and I was convinced that they would be scattered all over and nothing would have been done. He said, my platoon sergeant had held an inspection. He had uh, run a, a course, for, uh, you know, taught a class for all the units. They had uh, cleaned the barracks. He goes through all these things. He did it all on his own. And so we had a staff NCO officer uh, happy hour uh, the next week. And this staff sergeant comes up to me, and he says, sir, I want to thank you for the officer school. And I said, you do? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, you got the lieutenants away from the platoons, and we got a chance to do our thing. And it's great. And he says, I have a fantastic lieutenant, and I love him. Uh, and he said, but, you know, he tried to do everything. And he said, I had a chance to show him what I could do, and this was really great. So I said, by chance, is your lieutenant, and I named it that lieutenant, he said, yes, sir, that was my lieutenant. <laughs> and so, you know, I got, of course, the officer did, so I called the lieutenant over, and we got into a conversation about all this. But, you know, that lieutenant didn't realize how good his platoon sergeant was. He needed the opportunity to see it, and the platoon sergeant needed the opportunity to prove it to him. So the letter meant something for him because, 
we gave them that space. And, you know, from my sergeant major, the first sergeant, they were all saying, you know, this is great because not every platoon sergeant is going to take advantage of it, do it right, but, you know, he's, he's getting the opportunity. And, and they were able, the senior staff NCOs, the first sergeants and the sergeant major, were able, because I had them run the, their staff NCO school and NCO school, and they were able to say, this is your chance. You know, uh, the, the colonel's pulling the officers away for school, uh, and this is your chance to show them what you can do. And obviously, they're going to help the, the, the new staff sergeants, too. You're going to have the gunnies and the first sergeants and the sergeants major and master sergeants and all working with them. The, uh, I want, so I, want to, I have a question for you, and I, and I want to read you part of your letter. Uh, it's, it's about midway through the, the, the first paragraph. The value of the staff NCO for me has been the experience, knowledge, and example he brings to the unit. He has been there. He has successfully come up through the ranks. He knows how to best translate orders and directions into efficient and effective action by Marines. The t- traditional view of the staff NCO is the backbone of the Marine Corps is absolutely correct. The image of the Corps is embodied in the Dailies, Quicks, Basilones, and other legendary staff NCOs of our past. These were men whose courage and expertise built confidence and esprit along the chain of command from above and below. They made things happen on the battlefield and in garrison. Staff NCOs enforced the standards, be it in combat or in peacetime. They are the conscience of the unit and the keeper of those high, tough standards that separate the Corps from other military organizations. I want to ask you two questions. The first is uh, the whole concept that garrison is chicken shit, and the only thing that really counts is what goes on in combat. That's dead wrong. Uh, You know, the old sort of uh, Hollywood concept that, you know, you empty the brigs and there you got your fighters, that's all bullshit. Uh, You know, my experience... Uh, the, the NCOs, the, the staff NCOs, the ones I saw in Garrison, uh, that, that shined in that environment were the same ones that shined on, on the battlefield. Uh, you know, there, there's no, uh, separation. The whole idea, I mean, go back to the point I made about, uh, you know, boot camp inspections and weapons inspections in Vietnam. I mean, there's a clean, as that lieutenant said, there's a clean weapon. <laughs> There's no, no such thing as, uh, you know, you, you clean it to a certain degree for Vietnam and another degree for Garrison. I want to tell you about an experience I had as a battalion commander. Uh, and it started when I was a battalion XO in 1-8. Then became battalion commander 2-8. General Toomey came down as the CG of the 2nd Marine Division. And I don't know if you ever heard of General Toomey. Great big guy. Yes, sir. Really tough and gruff. They called him the gunny. And the first thing he did is he put out a set of standards. He said, every morning, every unit, the 2nd Marine Division will do one hour of drill, followed by a formation and inspection. That any group of Marines, more than two or three, going from point A to point B, will be marched. So he put all these standards out, you know, and all these requirements. And you should have heard the uproar. Oh, God, no, this is chicken shit. What are we doing? And all of a sudden, the whole atmosphere changed. I mean, when you walked around the 2nd Marine Division areas of Camp Lejeune, everybody looked squared away. Units were going from point A to point B, not in a gaggle, but in a formation. Every morning, people were drilling. As you went down the streets, you could hear the staff NCOs calling cadence, you could, and even the officers. Uh, you know, and, 
when I was a company commander, we had drill competition in Second Marine Division, uh, and I could remember all the formations in the drill, and that's something I had to be uh, had to really learn to be good at. And uh, uh, I remember winning the regimental drill competition in the. When I was in the company commander in Eighth Marines, I mean, it was a pride and joy of our unit. And and these sorts of things are important. I mean, these are the things that you know. We 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 fuzz the standards. When I was a battalion commander, we went to the rifle range. I told my sergeant major and all my company commanders, no marine leaves his rifle range until he's qualified. You know, and so I said, I don't give a shit if he's going to be out there two years. He's going to qualify. And obviously we had some Marines that had to stay longer. But everybody in the battalion was qualified, you know, on his weapon. Uh, and, and I remember when I, I got this trophy from uh, General Toomey, you know, uh, 100% qualification. And I thought, what's the big deal? This is what you're supposed to I mean, why would you, you know, I remember in, in, in Vietnam when I did a company inspection and in, 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 uh, looked at the weapons, I had a, I was going down the line and I'm looking at what the gear these people are carrying, these Marines are carrying, and who set the standard? Where's the, where's the uh, uh, SOP on what you carry? Who carries what in the squad in the unit? Uh, you know, in the way they were carrying things, and, uh, you know, the, the, there was no standardization. I got to one, Marine who had a scope on his M16. I had never seen a scope on an M16. And I asked the Marine, I said, where'd you get, you know, are you a sniper? You know, I was thinking, you know, do I have snipers in the company? And and he said, no, sir. I said, well, uh, what's the scope? He said, sir, well, I drew the rifle. It was on it. And I said, just, you know, what did you qualify? Because he came right from, uh, you know, boot camp ITR. To, mm-hmm. I said, what did you qualify as? He said, sir, I was unk. I said, unk? You know, first of all, what the hell are you doing with a scope? But what the hell are you doing here if you're unk, you know? Uh, and we actually had a rifle range. I had a, I, these, these Marines weren't qualified or they were uh, low marksmen. I wanted to upgrade there. <laughs> I wanted to be able to shoot and hit what the hell we're shooting at, you know? And that's a minimal requirement, I would think, in combat. And I would look at what they were carrying, you know? The the, uh, the guys who carried the uh, F-79s, the, the grenade launchers, you know, they had bags full of these grenades, which is dangerous to begin with. We have the best, you know, you got to put them on and uh, carry them in a way that's safe. Uh, you know, how do we, you know, what's the ammunition, what's the standard load we're taking? I mean, none of this had been established in the company, or if it ever been, it had it washed away and people get lazy. When I told the company we're going to be training when we're back in base camp, you should have heard the uproar. You know, and I said, no, we're going to train. I said, every NCO in this company is going to learn how to call in air and, and artillery and, and mortar fire. And I had my FOs, you know, that hold the classes. We're going to do drills, on and off helicopter drills. We're going to teach, I'm going to teach you courses in scouting and patrolling. And, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden you saw this change. The sense of pride, the sense of knowing your shit. And when we go to field, we go out in the field, you could tell. Uh, you could look around and see everybody was standardized. And if, you know, if there were two flashlights in the squad, everybody knew who had the flashlights. And if somebody became a casualty, what that person may have been carried that you know, not everybody was carrying that we needed in the squad to make sure you get it off them before you medevac them. I mean, SOPs and standards like that. And we let all that shit go to hell once we get into a 
combat environment. We just get lazy. We get sloppy. We get bad habits. The um, in my conversations with not only my sons, but other Marines that listen to this program, uh, I've learned a lot. And my observation is that somehow or other, uh, in this discussion about um, if, if what you say is true and valid about the staff and seal being the backbone, we have done something institutionally to our backbone because the guys are just as good. They're the same people that have always come up through our ranks and excelled. My opinion is we've done something to their ability to do what they have historically done, which is be the foreman on a, on a construction site, all, which happens all over this country. But in my opinion, it's now it's important their tone of voice. Now I can't say, hey, glasses, or hey, Zinni, come here, bring your Ginzo ass over here. I have to say, hey, Lance Corporal Zinni, please come here. And if I don't say it the right way, you'll hear them say, you know, he's gonna he's gonna go in the first sergeant and say that I hazed him in some way, shape, or form. And so, I, I how does this thing work? If we've created an environment in which our staff NCOs, and some people tell me this is bullshit, Mac, that's an excuse and it's a cop out. But I don't believe that. I've seen enough my own self before I retired in 2015 that they are they don't have the tools that we used to we, they used to have, and we used to call it or they used to call it playing fuck fuck. Oh, really? You could get sent to the chow hall. You were going on working parties to the armory, right? Were you going to go dig a, a machine gun pit? I reported to the fleet in 1984. And I want to say there was an Almar that got published shortly before I got to the fleet because they were bitching about it. And that was, if you assign somebody EMI, you had to periodically go check on them during the course of the day. And they thought, this is such bullshit. Like, this is not the Marine Corps. Who... Why do I got to go out and check on him if he's digging a fighting position? I go look at it when it's done. And obviously somebody was doing out in 29 Palms or wherever and fainted and probably died or, or something or almost did. And, and yada. How does the Marine Corps function if staff and COs aren't doing what they've historically done? Yeah. Well, you know, it goes back to a deeper problem in our society. Uh, we now raising generations that are not allowed to be exposed to any stress. Right. Uh, you go onto a college campus, uh, which I was on one not too long ago, and they wanted to show me the the the, uh, uh, the safe room. At first, I thought it was a place you go in case there was a shooting or something. Right. Right. But it, but it was a place with whale sounds and you know easy chairs and you know if people get stressed, they have you know of course we know the story of the timeout cards. Right. And, you can't, and so we wonder why we have so many cases of, of people that, that the stresses of combat really affect them uh, heavily. Uh, if you're not allowed to expose people to stress, and now what should happen with that, it's, it's not a matter of abusing them. It's putting them under stressful conditions and then teaching them and training them how to handle that stress. Uh, that's the point. If, if you can't do anything that is perceived as stressful, uh, then what you're doing is you're, 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 you're going to allow them to be confused because when they get in, the enemy, it doesn't give you timeout cards, you know? And uh, when they get into those conditions, they aren't going to be able to cope with it because there's been no preparation for it. There's been no, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to train somebody to go onto the football field that you've not allowed any any blocking, blocking and tackling in practice. I mean, how could that be? They're going to get hurt uh, and, and not be able to cope with it. But it's it's societal. 
it's washed over from this. That's why we have helicopter moms now and, and parents. You've got to be involved in every area. That's why every kid gets a trophy. Nobody's allowed to feel, oh, my God, I, 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 I didn't do as well as, as Johnny or our team didn't do as well as the other team. That's life. You know, I mean, how do you deal with life? And we're wondering why we have all these problems of coping, why people resort to, uh, and, you know, abuse drugs or, uh, you know, find other ways to try to deal with the stresses of life other than learning how to deal with it and cope with it. And I don't know how you do that unless you get exposed to it. Now, I'm the first one to tell you I don't believe in abuse and I don't believe in degradation of an individual in respect, but I think we know how to put stressful conditions on people and test their abilities without uh, abuse. And and the other part of that is respect for authority. You know, I mean, that platoon sergeant, you know, he isn't going to sit down with you and try to explain uh, in, in detail and uh, an order he gives in the middle of combat. I mean, it's going to be, you know, <laughs> come on, you bastards, you want to live forever? I mean, you know, and, and you race across that wheat field at Bella Wood, uh, and everybody's going to go. I mean, I, I just, I, I listened to a, uh, a video that was, uh, there were a bunch of uh, veterans from World War II, it's, it's a little bit older vi- video, and somebody was asking them, how did you, how were you able, and the stresses of you achieve and all this, to do what you did? And they just said, you know, your training kicks in, you fall back on it, it's what you learn, you know, and when that sergeant tells you to go and do, and you just go and do, you know. But we're going to create a situation where you don't develop that, you don't develop it in training. Nothing can be hard for people. Uh, you know, we've created generations now that uh, can't be stressed in any way, can't be seen as, as, as succeeding in failing. Yet, I don't know if you've ever read Teddy Roosevelt's speech at the Sorbonne where he talked about the man in the arena. Uh, yes, sir, I have. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everybody, every every Marine ought to read that because it's, a, it's, it's it, what counts is that you go into the arena and Teddy Roosevelt says you're going to fail, you're going to fall down, you're going to get dirty, you're going to you're going to hurt. But the point is, you're going to get up and you're going to keep doing. I mean, and 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 if you don't put this individual in the arena, if you're trying to protect them from that, they're never, when they face that, be, be able to handle it or cope with it. I want to. Um, you're one of the leaders in the Marine Corps. Um, that helped the Marine Corps transition, I think understood it well um, at first, but the transition to a maneuver warfare style of fighting. Um, what's the role of discipline play in that system? And and, and if, if you could launch that into a peer fight, and I believe the last peer we fought is the one you fought. Um, I, I read the stories of the battles of Leatherneck Square, Kantian, Dong Ha, July, the, the fighting that went on up there around Camp Carroll, around Quezon with the NBA, they were coming to put our heads on a stick. And, I mean, you read uh, the story of Delta Company 1-4 getting overrun by the DMZ, that the NBA had flamethrowers. And you're like, holy shit. You know, Operation Prairie 1, I think, 1,200 NBA soldiers killed in a two-week period, and I want to say 279 Marines killed. I mean, that's no shit combat. That's not like the ROE, you know, an ambush game that, that, that you know, that got played most of the time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I'm curious about your thoughts. 
going to fight appear because you read the stories of you read that you read of the field craft of the NDA um, are amazing. I, I interviewed a squad leader from India Company 39 that was in the same company that Butch Neal was in when Lieutenant Bobo uh, was awarded his Medal of Honor. They had four Navy crosses, six silver stars, three bronze stars at the Battle of Getland's Quarter. And the NDA tracked them all day. And, and then when they got told to set in three platoon ambushes and the company commander pushed back, he got told to shut up in color. And when each, co- each platoon got a click away from the company CP, the NDA walked mortars across it, and they tried to overrun them. That's the state of the, field, of the field craft of a peer, even though he didn't have, you know, the supporting arms and the aviation assets that we had, although he had, he had artillery and mortars. How, how do you do peer warfare if you're not disciplined, disciplined organization? Well, you're not. I mean, and... and you know, is, you began this with about the maneuver warfare. One of the one of the tenets of maneuver warfare is trust. You know, and obviously, if you if you can't have trust, then uh, you're not going to be able to. Uh, and, and it's backed up by training and, and, and education and, uh, and and discipline. But let, let me give you an example. Of what I mean by that. Uh, you know, it, you look at the rules of engagement. And my son was a weapons company commander in one six in, in, when they took margin, and he, you know, he's trained to run a fire support coordination center. Uh, he had to clear fires two levels above him. How does that demonstration of trust? You know, our doctrine and what we train people to do. You know, he's been through attacks. He's been through fire support coordination. Uh, courses in schools. He's done it. Uh, and, and so we don't trust a battalion, the fire support coordination center to make decisions. It's got to go two levels above. You know, uh, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. That's a lack of trust. And, and it violates one of the principles of, of, of the whole renaissance and the operational art where we're going to develop uh, junior leaders and, and trust and not be able to operate on intent and believe in what the training and education we give them the ability to do, then we take it away from them. You know, so, you know, where's the, uh, you know, where's the faith and where's the trust in that? And, and, you know, if you're going to put them through that training and going to tell them that's what their obligation is, which we've done all throughout our history, then suddenly say, uh, you're not capable of that, Captain, anymore, uh, or Lieutenant Colonel or Major. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I I think the quality of the people we have today is there. It's the you know it, it it's the disbelief by those that don't understand what you face in, in combat as to what you've got to be able to do. I'm I'm reading a book right now on the on First Marine Division at Chosun Reservoir. I mean, it is unbelievable what they did, and without discipline. Any other, I mean, any unit would have fallen apart under those circumstances. How it didn't is, is a testimony to the Marine leadership and discipline, you know, from O.P. Smith down to those regimental commanders, Jesse Buller and, and the others, and what they went through. Uh, and, and, and you can see when you read all that, and, and it, 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 you can just see that the only thing left was all your training and education. It's freezing cold. You're being overrun by 
hundreds of thousands of Chinese. They're all around you. They're relentlessly attacking you. What do you fall back on? There's no time out card. There's no one trying to relieve your stress. You've got to stand up and do it. Marines wounded three, four, or five times still fighting, you know, and, and caring about their people, coming out with all their equipment, coming out with all their people. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, uh, it, it, it just shows you the proof again of what discipline can do and, uh, and self-discipline. And, you know, we used to say Marine Corps builds men, I mean, and now men and women, but the idea is we're building that into you, your ability to withstand it. You know, the, the stress of the combat, I can tell you from someone who's been chopped to pieces laying on a battlefield, a lot of things go through your head that you got to push out. It's the discipline of saying, you know, do I worry about me? Do I worry about my family? Do I worry about my Marines? Well, my job right now is to worry about my Marines. You know, and you've got to keep your head in the game, and you've got to do it. Not knowing whether you're bleeding to death or not, and the corpsman doesn't know, uh, you know, uh, where do you go? What do you do? I mean, there's something that has to kick in, and that has to do with what you feel, you know, your your, your responsibility is, your duty is, and, and that requires a lot of self-discipline to stay tuned in. I was at the Air Force Academy the la- yesterday speaking uh, about this thing that I call post-traumatic learning. And it's built around something my company, Gunny, when a, told me when a, a Huey crashed inside my assembly area, 29 Palms, when I was a company commander. Uh, the pilot was decapitated. The co-pilot crushed it. We tried to save uh, the crew chief, a sergeant by the name of Bazarine, and, uh, and, and a corporal who just went for a ride that day. And... Uh, I, I say it was the first time I really participated in the dance of death where you're trying as hard as you can to save somebody, and they're trying as hard as they can to live. And and uh, it's not like John Wayne in the Sands of Iwo Jima, right? Your hands are on them, right? You see the, the scared look in their face. Uh, I'll never forget Sergeant Bazzarini's Judge Levain jumping out of his throat. Um, and late in the day, my gunny walked up to me, and he said, How are you doing, sir? And I said, You know, you know, I've been busy. I haven't really, I haven't really thought about it. And he then gave me the best advice I think I've ever been given in my life. And he looked at me and he said, you know you're never going to get over this, right? And I, you know, I cussed at him a whole bunch and told him to get away from me. And then I asked him, who told you that? And he just stood there, you know, six foot four, big ear, gunny. And he said, you need to know that. And I said, who told you that? And he said, Vietnam guys told me that. And I didn't hear the whole story until last December when I had lunch with him 25 years later. And I said, hey, man, I've... That advice has been huge in my life. And now I go and I talk to people about how, how you live a great life with trauma. And um, and I talk part of it's military stuff. My sister's two sons were murdered. And so I talk about, look, it's, I'm, and I'm, these lessons that come out of our culture that can, that can transform people, uh, can transform not only people inside the military, but civilians. It's because it's, they're universal truths. I said, where did you get it? And he told me a story about about uh, standing next to his first sergeant as, as watching a master sergeant who was a Vietnam guy uh, in the late 90s, uh, now in uh, recon company, uh, 3rd Recon Battalion. And he said uh, he'd go get a 12-pack of Miller Trolls and go back to his room and get drunk every night, but show up for work the next day. And he said the first sergeant looked at him and said, you know you're never going to get over that, right? 
that kind of wisdom, that unvarnished, most of it coming down the enlisted side, not the genius side of the Marine Corps, but the but the smart, smart side of the Marine Corps, long before there was any um, any diagnosis of PTSD, um, has 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 now formed the core of something that I go around the country and talk about. I'll, I'll be in Capitol Hill next week, and and um, and so while I was talking, the Air Force uh, wing commander. At the end of my, my pitch, stood up and he said, "You know the things were that Max talking about are are on on the on the burner of the Marine uh, of the Air Force. It's called intrusive leadership." Now I, I'm curious about your thoughts of that. The, the Air Force is even talking about intrusive leadership because we've backed so far away, and all in, in terms of suicide, all we get is more suicide. Spend more money, and everybody's numbers continue to go up. And and I'm curious about what you what goes through your head when you hear a term like intrusive leadership. Yeah, well, I don't even know what intrusive leadership is. I mean, I do know one thing, and this is the kind of thinking lately that uh, theorists about leadership are talking about. When we talk about leadership, we tend to think about the old traditional heroic leadership. There's one guy. You know, one guy comes out in front. He's on the white horse. He's the tribal leader. He's the biggest, strongest. He's the charismatic guy, and that that's leadership. Well, what we're finding is that's part of leadership. You know, obviously, you know, you're great commanders and all, but there's there's group leadership. If, you know, when when a group comes together, when the culture is just right, when they bond, that's a form of leadership. You know, the, the idea of the core and the unit and your team, and if it's right and it bonds, and and there's a function of leadership shortly to help that happen, that's a, a leadership. You, you know, we haven't thought about groups as leaders. Uh, and, 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 and leadership emerging from a group. And I think Marine Corps is a great example of that. Like I told you, just chose on Bedwar. No Marine is going to let down the group or the team. And they're going to step up if, if necessary. Uh, so part of leadership is creating that culture. It's creating the culture to say, if I go down, next man up. And the group, you know, gathers around that. There's a couple of things that make a big difference between what I grew up in the Marine Corps with and what I saw change over time and where we are now. I remember when we were going to go to rooms for the troops. And I was General Haynes' uh, aide. I was in the car with General Barrow. General Haynes and General Barrow were in the back seat. And, And General Barrow said, if we go to this idea of rooms, it's going to destroy the Marine Corps. Now, this is General Barrow. You know, he's a commandant of the Marine Corps. He was, you know, bigger than life. He's a great uh, uh, hero of our Corps. He said, we're going to lose the camaraderie and the tightness, the ability to lean on somebody else, the ability of our NCOs and others to see when something is not going quite right to intervene. And maybe that's the intrusive leadership. We put blocks to it, the intrusive leadership. You know, we, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's great that the troops have their own room. Now we've come to all this. But did we break down unit cohesion? Now we pay a hell of a lot. As a lieutenant, I barely made a payday to payday with uniform and car payments, uh, 
you know, and so where did I go? I went to the club. That's where everybody went. You went to happy hour. Uh, you bonded there. Do we do that anymore? How many of our officers live off base? I remember in 1988 when General Gray came out to, I was, when I was CG, uh, CEO of Ninth Marines, and he came out to watch an amphibious landing we were doing, and we were standing on the beach, and General Gray turned to me and he said, this is an historic day in the Corps. And I'm trying to think, what the hell? I'm trying to remember the evil Kilo, you know, Aquato Canal, what the hell? And, and I looked at him, he says, today we cross the line, we have more dependents than we have Marines. And, and now it's exponentially more. I remember in one mess, because like I told you, my first platoon, there was only two married guys, my guy, a sergeant, and my platoon sergeant. Now, when I, uh, in one mess, I looked at the platoons to get the number married, 43, and this is now back in the 90s, 43% in the platoons were married. You know, uh, so now, this is all good stuff. I'm not criticizing Marines getting married or Marines having rooms, but you gotta understand the impact. You know, when, when my platoon and my squad, they, they were all in there. They knew each other. They knew each other personally. They knew if Lance Corporal Jones is acting a little funny and a little strange and something's going on in his life and, you know, the, the fire team leaders, the corporals I had then, uh, you know, it, 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 they were, they could help Marines with personal problems and had, didn't have to be the officer and the company commander. And they were, this, this intrusive leadership, you didn't have to intrude, you were already there within the, the organization. I, I read something where the Royal Marines, when they came out of, uh, uh, when the units rotated out of Afghanistan, they didn't go directly back home. They went, uh, I think, to Cyprus or someplace, and they stayed together for a bit of time, a week or two, whatever, to decompress, to talk to each other about what they experienced, to, to look at each other, to see how everybody was handling it. You know, when I went out to do the assessments in Iraq and Afghanistan, what struck me is I would get on a plane, and literally 24 hours later, I could be in my kitchen. So I'm thinking about these Marines and soldiers that they're on a battlefield, and within hours, you know, at least a few days, they're thrown back into, you know, everything's back, you know, back home. You're back in the, you know, the, the fireplace and the warm, you know, the kittens and the kids. Is it, you know, in World War II, you had to come back on those troop ships. You spent a lot of time together, right. decompressing, thinking, talking, you know. So I would go to that word intrusive leadership tells me that you feel there's a need to find a way to intrude because it doesn't exist within the context of the system we have now. That's a scary thought that 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 now we have to look at. Hey, it's got to be intrusive because we back so far out of this thing. And as you said, I mean, it seeped from our public schools into the DOD, and now we're finding a way that we ha- we've got to get back into that business of, of hands-on leadership. And when I say hands-on, I don't mean physical leadership, but I mean um, I, you have you know, to you have to know them and love them. And, and well, care about it's them. harder. It's harder now. It's harder than I had it. Look, I commanded six companies, actually six and a half. I had a cadre company too, as a additional duty while I was a company commander. You know, and 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 I, I'm trying to think of four platoons, six companies, and I mean that's really rubber meets the road leadership down there. But I got to tell you, I had it in an era where 
I, I was living with my troops. You know, I mean, basically, you, you, you're, you're 24-7 in their life or pretty close to it, and certainly my NCOs were. Uh, and, you know, it, you didn't, there wasn't something going on with one Marine that you didn't know about or didn't sense. Uh, it, it, it's a different world now, and, and I'm not making qualitative judgments right. on it, uh, but, uh, you know, it's harder now. You've got to lead in very different ways. You know, every Friday, I was in happy hour, and I was in the officers' club with all, and, and sometimes we did, the staff NCOs would have officer night at the staff NCO club, and I'm in there with them. And, you know, we we bonded. We knew each other. I didn't go off pace very much because what was there off pace for me to do? First of all, I didn't have money to spend out there or anything else, but I didn't live off pace. Uh, you know, and now if you're married, you can certainly live off pace. People encourage, they buy houses and all that. I see that. God bless them. Don't get me wrong again. But, again, it's not the same kind of group tightness and cohesion that's built from this, you know, being in this situation 24-7. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I, I chose to go to Okinawa. I had a chance to go down to second, uh, to TUMAF to be a new commander or to Okinawa to be a regimental commander. And one of the reasons I wanted to get the regimental experience, especially Okinawa, is they're deployed over there. They're 24-7 together. You know they're living in the in the uh, in the in the squad bays in, the, in in that environment. The rotational battalions. They're trained up. They're at the peak of their you know their their their, their qualifications and their ability when they're out there. Uh, you know, and, and the amazing thing is it was almost like back to the to, to what I had seen when I first came in. The um, so talk about um, if you wouldn't mind. Um, if you, if if the if, if the lay of the land has changed that much, then it's incumbent on the leaders to recre- to to in some way, shape, or form recreate those events to create the camaraderie, right? And you've got to recreate them. And 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 I, yeah. and I want to dovetail that to this. Um, if I told you that. The, the, a company in the Marine Corps was holding a rifle company was only holding two company two, two formations a week. They were passing information via text messages and letting the platoons do their own thing, um, which even takes them. Now when we're not only out of the the, the 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 squad bay, but now we're we don't even have to interact with the company gunning, but a couple times a week, and we're out of that 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 the the evil eye. Of that that E7 that is wire brushing everybody from from uh, his junior staff NCOs to the individual Marines, um, uh, can you do it like that? You know, it, it, every every organization has a key level or entity in it. You know, and I would argue that it's always been in the Marine Corps, the battalion. That's the as we say in our doctrine, the smallest unit capable of independent operations. But if you look for a persona uh, for a Marine unit, it's usually tagged on the battalion. You know, battalions have mottos, battalions have nicknames. You know, battalions are uh, the lowest level with a staff that you're able to uh, 
and functional areas to do all this. And if you don't create a battalion identity, we deploy as battalions, as DLTs, rotational battalions and all that, and same thing for squadrons too. And, and so you need to create that sense of personal leadership, involvement, engagement at that level, uh, more than any other level. If you're passing it down to company or platoon, now they have to have that maybe even more intense relationship, but it is a battalion squadron context. Uh, and, and that's how you identify, uh, that's where you identify most with, uh, that point. And if we're not, if we're not engaging at that level, if that battalion commander is not known by every Marine and he doesn't know every Marine, he's not engaged with them, uh, then you're, you're compounding this problem. You're passing it to too low a level, uh, uh, to engage. And, 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 and I think in the end that's, that, that's going to hurt you, uh, in, 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 in the way you interact, in the way you engage with your Marines. Because probably at that battalion level, that's the lowest where you have, uh, a, a, an ability to engage with everybody on a person-to-person basis. Mm-hmm. When you cut out the personal context, if you're going to go to technology and information communication technology as your means of communicating, you've lost the personal touch that's critical. From battalion, company, platoon level, squad, I mean, that has to be there. Uh, it's, it's much harder at a regimental level. You really have to work at it, believe me, uh, to, to say that every man in my regiment, every Marine in my regiment knows who I am and knows how I think or whatever, it's very difficult. You can certainly do it to the officers and staff and COs. It gets harder below that. At a division level, you know, obviously it's almost impossible. Uh, but you, at that battalion level, if you pass that off to the companies and platoons, you're breaking down the, the, the key central element of, uh, you know, within a larger organization that is necessary to maintain that sort of uh, uh, connectivity and cohesion. You know uh, General Van Riper, you're good friends with him. Um, yep. He took a lot of grief when he published his 21 rules um, in uh, right around the 19, 1990s when he went, was at the 2nd Division. Uh, General Furnesses did the same. Um, in General Van Riper's interview, he, he lays out just the most, <laughs> this is why we did that stuff. But the Marine Corps didn't respond well back in 1990 to General Van Riper. You know, he was ridiculed as like, oh my God, you go down to you go down to Camp Lejeune, and and uh, you know, guys are going crazy about standing lights. People are throwing trash in each other's areas. You even made a joke about that um, in your PME. And uh, and and why do you think we forget these basic lessons, and that we as Marines, if we're not disciplined? You know that's our skeleton. That's our that's our infrastructure. Uh, why do you think? And, and, and it was interesting to watch the the backlash against General Furness. And now it could even be greater because you know we all have social media and everybody gets an anonymous name and you know and can tell a general off. Um, what do you make of all that? Why why does this whole discipline thing seem to be uh, at times in our history? Is it just the ebb and flow, the cycle of the way the Marine Corps goes? Uh, I, I think it's it, it, right now we come. We're, there's a society that's much freer, 
uh, and, and generations that are being created, like we said, like we've been discussing, where no stress can be put on them, no discipline can be demanded of them. Uh, standards are, are very much uh, loosened. Uh, uh, you, you know, you can't offend anybody. Uh, I, I just read something on the Internet before I talk to you about San Francisco has just passed a, a law. You cannot refer to someone as a convicted felon anymore. It has to be somebody who was uh, justice involved. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so what? what so you have you, you, you can see where society is going. Military is a reflection of society. You're not going to, you know, we tried our hardest to immune ourselves from the racial and drug cultures that were happening in the 60s and 70s. And we could, I mean, there was a certain amount we could do, but you certainly couldn't, you know, uh, live in, 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 a, in, in a sealed off world from uh, what was on the outside and what came in. Uh, and, and so what we're seeing now is a change in our, in our culture. I mean, you want, uh, let me go back to what you said about a, if we got involved in another peer war. Right. Uh, if you look at Russians and Chinese and you look at discipline and, and, and being hard and tough and uh, having to grow up with stress and uh, being able to endure it, how is the average American going to stand up to that? Right now, we, we know that 73, 74% of the people eligible by age group to come into the military can't qualify. And that's shrinking every year. So whether it's drug use, abuse, uh, uh, or uh, obesity, or whatever it is, you know, failure to complete school, or whatever, uh, where are we going to get the, 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 the people that come off and out of the, like, that in World War II came out of the factories and off the farms and every place else that, you know, had something in them that uh, they could bring uh, because they've been through, the, 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 you know, stresses and hardships and all. We're going to see that in this generation. I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, uh, you know that that NBA soldier that I saw, uh, he was a tough nut. I mean, and he could endure a hell of a lot. And uh, uh, it was tough enough under that environment. Uh, and again, we were fighting uh, that culture with the culture we had that had some major issues and problems. But that might even be worse now. You've been very generous. So I've got two more questions, and I'll let you go. Um, one is uh, General Mattis uh, published his flat-ass rules. General Van Riper published his 21 rules, and I, I think he, he, he wrote a, a couple of different documents. One is, I think, Advice for Subordinates is another great one, and I've, I have them on my website. Uh, and, and General Finesse just posted his, uh, I think, daily basic routine or, or whatnot. Um, you did a PME called Combat Concepts. I, I, I'm curious about articulating your vision, whether it's in 21 rules, whether it's Combat Concepts, because I will tell you what, sir, I've never seen anybody else do that. The first person I know that did it was General Furness, who went around with his roadshow and his slides. We've evolved since your, uh, since your, your, your overhead projector shit. Um, but I thought, you know, I walked out of there, and I never met you in my life, but I had an idea of how you thought. 
Talk to me about the significance of, of whether it's 21 rules and advice, whether it's flat-ass rules, whether it's you know a daily, a daily basic routine or your combat concepts. How important do you think it is for commanders to get out there and no shit articulate what they expect from their organization um, in, in very, very, you know, uh, very, very direct terms? How important is that? You know, my approach is a little different. I, I, I have no problem with somebody setting rules and setting standards. I think you know that's all great and needs to be done. People need to know what, what your expectations are. But I viewed it a little bit differently. It's not just me telling you what I expect of you. It's me standing up in front of you and showing you how I think, who I am. I need you to trust me, not me saying you need to do this so I can trust you. So the combat concepts was kind of, you know, at that same time we were talking about commander's philosophy. Remember, uh, uh, we were telling commanders now you, every you should write down your command philosophy. You should update it every year. You should put it out as you learn and, and, and develop an experience. And I'm saying if we're doing that about leadership, why aren't we doing about that about our profession, our profession of arms? So the combat concepts wasn't me saying, here's my 21 rules on how we're going to fight. Because that's a one-way, you know, dictate. I wanted to say, this is how I'm thinking about how, you know, we would fight. Uh, these are my thoughts. These are the things I'm convinced of. These are the things I'm uncertain about. And, and join me in this. Let's think about these things together. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, what I used to start that class out when I gave it in Ninth Marines is I said, one of the purposes of this officer school and the one we do twice a week is that some lieutenant in this regiment is going to find himself on a hill someday in the middle of combat, no communications, and he doesn't have a new mission. And he's going to say to himself, what would Colonel Zinni want me to do right now? And he's going to be able to answer that question. And I said, it, it, the purpose of these officer schools and me going through my thinking on combat concepts and everything is so you can get into my head, uh, and we can go through this together. And it gives you an opportunity to question me and to challenge me. When you issue rules, you're not given that invitation. You're saying, here's the way it is. Live with it. This is what I know is right, and you've got to do it. What I'm saying is, let's figure this out together. Let me tell you how I'm thinking. Let me tell you things I'm pretty sure of. You know, let's get a Vulcan mind meld here. So it's a little bit different approach than, than the issuance of rules and standards. The um, and so the, but their blowback would be, oh well, wait a minute, Zinni, I did that too. So don't try to clip me on my rules just because you didn't write them. I can hear, I can argue, I can argue. And so, I guess rules are fine as long as you get out there and you fill in the blanks with your narrative of combat concept. But I, I let, me tell you, let me tell you something about rules. You put out the rule and this is the way it is. Something's going to happen that's an exception to the rule. And you're going to suddenly try to figure out, oh, shit, you know, I've committed to this ahead of time. It's not dependent on context or situation. I, my idea is I want to teach you principles. I want you to live by these principles. I don't want to give you specific prescriptive rules. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you think about maneuver warfare, that flies in the face of maneuver warfare. You know, the idea that there are going to be rules, there's going to be principles of war, there's going to be these sorts of things. So, you know, one principle of war is the principle of mass, and you should never split your forces. I can give you 21 different scenarios off the top of my head where you might split your forces, you know. So 
I remember Sam Finchel coming up to me one time and saying, Sir, what's your policy on this and what's your policy on that? And I said, my policy is not to have a policy. You know, you will see by my example, you will see by what we talk about how we should be behaving and conducting ourselves. Now, you, if it's necessary to have a, a list of prescriptive rules on how you should live your life and, and be a Marine, we got a problem. <laughs> I mean, if, if you think by I put out a rule and say don't drive fast, that means no one's going to drive fast, right? And I have to put that rule up because it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know a speed limit was meant that you can't exceed that. I mean, I don't need to say that. And if you get caught, you're going to get punished with it. Now, we can talk about why do we have that speed limit? Why why is it that speed on in this particular road? Why are we doing that? Uh, what's the purpose of it? What's the danger of not adhering to it? You see, I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but what I'm trying to do is conceptually come at these things so we think about them and come to the same decisions to how we should behave rather than me dictating and ordering a, a set of behaviors. No, no, no. I, no, I, uh, no. I understand it. I am. I, I have them in my head. I have General Van Riper's discussion in my head about. Well, I went on to do that, right? And so it wasn't a, a one and off kind of thing when I published that stuff. And uh, and the guys who published that, they've, they've got a little gray matter going on. And uh, and I would think, but I don't think enough people do it. I mean, you. I mean, think about that. I mean, even if you just say that, you know. That's off the top of my head. That's three guys in the space of forty years, right? And I, and like I said, I've never seen anybody do a, a combat concept presentation like you did. I mean, that thing you did in Quantico lasted what two and a half, three hours? Yeah, yeah. And 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 that was you all leadership, calm, fire support, you know, maneuver warfare. I mean, you talked you talked about all of it, and. Um, I, I just think not enough people stand up there and, and articulate, you know, their thoughts, whether we be talking about leadership, and here's my list, here's the footnotes that go with it, here's the lecture on top of that, all right, give me your best shot. Not enough people do that, which is, to me, the essence of filling in, the, filling in those blanks and getting them to understand your vision. But I've been surprised, and I've thought about this all, all those years, because I, you know, I, that PME changed my life. I, I, and, and you know this, that I, made, I made cassette tapes for every lieutenant that asked for them that went through IOC for about two years. I wore out one of the greatest Sansui dual tape decks in the world, um, because of that PME, and and I'll run into them today, and they they can quote that thing, right? They can quote chapter and verse of of of, of combat concept from 1990. I just think it was it, it was so powerful for all of us, and not enough people do it. And that's to me when you combine these, you know, whether it's your rules or your philosophy or whatever, the way you make it come alive is the power of your personality and how you animate it. And I, I've never seen anybody do it as well as you did that night. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a form, it's a philosophical difference in leadership. You know, if you believe decision-making and leadership is a participatory function, where everybody has a role to play in it, then you, you maybe take the approach of the combat concepts. If you believe leadership is a top-down directive function, then you issue rules. 
uh, you know, and, 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 and again, I'm not knocking issuing rules because I think, you know, that helps explain who you are and what you are and what you expect. And, uh, and, and there's, there's a lot of goodness in that. I've worked for a lot of guys that, uh, uh, that had a lot, lived by a lot of, uh, rules. I, I was XO in a battalion, a battalion commander published a policy every day, you know, and was written and distributed. I mean, uh, uh, the bulletin boards were full of them. Uh, but you knew who he, where he stood and what he wanted. Uh, there was no guessing. And he lived by those rules. So, uh, uh, you know, I understand. It's just a different philosophical uh, approach to, right. to leadership. You know, and I, when I said that everybody in this group is a leader, someday you may find yourself in that position. Uh, and, and everybody has a, owns a piece of the unit. It's not just my unit. You know, I, uh, I, I find it interesting how, how commanders refer to their units. If they refer to our battalion or my battalion, that tells me a lot. You know, uh, I, I, I listen to commanders say things like, this battalion. As soon as somebody refers to that like that, I know he is, he is trying to back away from responsibility and disown uh, responsibility and accountability for things. If I hear him saying my battalion, my this, I did that, I'm saying his ego's too big and this is a directive leader. When I hear our, we, then I'm listening to somebody who believes, maybe like I do, that it's participatory. It's, it's, it's engaged. All of us are engaged. All of us have an ownership responsibility and a leadership responsibility. All right. Here's my last question. This is the general question. Uh, what haven't it should be a general question. <laughs> what haven't I been smart enough to ask you about discipline, your thoughts on it, how it applies to Marines, how it applies to us as a, uh, the Marine Corps as a culture um, that you want to that you want to make sure that people understand. Well, let me give you two short ones. One, we shouldn't think of discipline as punishment. That often gets the the most. Uh, Sort of the interpretation or definition. Discipline is, is is living up to a set of standards. It's it's uh, it's self control. Uh, you know, it has a lot of aspects to it. I, again, I I really believe our our core values should be honor, courage, discipline. That's who we are. Uh, I can never figure out when I first came into Marine Corps why they were measuring the distance from the end of my belt buckle to the tip of the belt in 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 uh, fractions. Uh, and then I realized because that shows you how detailed and how much attention to detail we pay, uh, and, and is a, it signifies our discipline and attention to those details because it carries over to our mission and our, our role in combat. So that becomes critically important. The other point I would make is about something related to discipline that often isn't connected, and that's this issue of loyalty. We have too much displaced loyalty. We somehow, if we're in a unit where members in the unit do something wrong, we feel our strongest loyalties to the unit, so we should never do anything about it or own up to it or tell somebody about it. And the mistake we're making is assuming that loyalty is, is, exists just because, uh, uh, you join a unit or you have a senior and you're responsible for giving loyalty and that's the end of it. It's not. Loyalty is earned. You want my loyalty? Give me your integrity. If you don't give me your integrity, you've lost my loyalty. I owe you nothing. 
that we are overreacting on this loyalty issue. That that uh, uh, you know, there's going to be a code of silence. We're not going to rat on anybody. We're not going to snitch, even though they're doing atrocious things which violate our code, our standards, our core values. If that person is doing it, he's lost your loyalty because he hasn't given you his or her integrity, and that is a that applies to discipline too. You know, uh, who do you give your loyalty to and under what circumstances? Cherish that loyalty. You don't give it. It has to be earned by somebody for you to be able to provide that loyalty. So I want to make that point because I think it gets related to this. Well, you know, sir, I'll tell you, disturbingly enough, there's been recent, you know, you know, high-level general court-martials where, you know, you know, People get they get immunity, then all of a sudden they change their story. They have a version that nobody's ever heard before, and then and then uh, the people that, in my opinion, showed some moral courage and said, "Hey, look, we got told not to, not to, not to to be afraid to report this kind of stuff, and we did." And what won in the end was never rat somebody out, never betray the group. You know, take care of your okay. own. Yeah. And to but me, the question becomes, who betrayed the group? Well, it, not the person that's reporting it, the person who violated a code or a standard or a value. That, that's where we're getting confused. And that's one of the things we have to do a better job in training and teaching and educating our people. You know, uh, young people come in with this wrong code, you know, where, uh, you know, you can't snitch. Uh, so, you know, there's gunfire in the neighborhood, kids are being killed, innocent people killed in the street, but you can't snitch on who the gangs are and who has the guns. Uh, you know, so if that carries over, what you're saying is, I'm, I'm at fault for, uh, adhering and, and living to the standards and reporting the violations. You who violated it aren't as, as guilty as I am, even though you don't warrant that loyalty. And again, you know, just an observation, and you can comment, and I'll let you go, but, you know, we've seen the incidents in the Seventh Fleet. Uh, a ship, first night under new skipper, out of port, crossing a major, major shipping lane. Neither the CO nor the XO are on the bridge. You've got a, a relatively junior watch team with degraded radar going 22 knots through a shipping lane. And you, you hear that, and you think, you look, for all the, we didn't get enough sleep, not sure how that applies the first night out of port, and all these things that are so bad, there's a leadership There's a leadership solution to every one of those. Hey, let's back this thing down to 11 knots. If the radar is degraded, let's, let's double the external watch. Right? We've been sailing around the world for a few hundred years. We can get through this thing tonight. But none of those things happen. And then we've, we've seen just, I would say, the, 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 the moral crisis in our special operation forces. We have Marines that, that have come into Marine Corps and aren't even, you know, aren't even, uh, you know, uh, probably a year out of uh, Eagle Globe and Anchor being thrust into their palm crying during the crucible when that happens, and now they're in the brig for smuggling. And so this, uh, I think the societal problems, you know, have have come into the, you know, the military, and we're not sure how to handle them. We're not sure how much of that hands-on intrusive leadership has to has to still maintain and how we can't be like the society but in the meantime, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's all these horrible trials that, that we're seeing coming out of the special forces community, whether it's human trafficking or ships colliding, um, literally killing people, 
and destroying lives. And I think that that's why this discipline discussion is so important, sir. And, and, and I want to thank you. First, sure. give your thoughts, and, and, and can't thank you enough for, for coming on and doing this. Well, I appreciate being on. Thank you. All right. That is General Anthony Zinn. Tony is his name, and uh, he's, uh, he's been a, a repeated guest on All Marine Radio and can't say thank you enough. All right, we're not going anywhere. It sounds like Van Riper and Zinni disagree. And so we're going to bring General Van Riper on right now, and we're going to ask him about that gap, what lo- looks like to be a gap, and uh, between General Zinni's I don't like lists, I think they're top-down, and General Van Riper articulating things in throughout his career via lists. So, here we go. After her hearing General Zinni, um, uh, who I've li- been listening to since 1990 when I first crossed paths with him when I was a captain, and he was a colonel coming back from uh, being uh, the CO 9th Marines, um, one of the things that went through my head when he was talking about how he thinks that uh, publishing a list or, or, or something like that is top-down leadership. Was one of the things he said in his PME, and that's how, that he liked having different guys come on, and he liked uh, the lieutenants and the captains that were uh, sitting in the, the regimental PMEs at Ninth Marines, and everybody there to hear them disagree. And I think it, it promotes free thinking, and I think it also promotes a complete thought. And so. Uh, Joining me is uh, Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper, and uh, he's uh, been uh, arguing with Tony Zinni for a long, long time. So, first of all, sir, uh, appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. All right. Uh, tell us about when did you first meet uh, Tony Zinni? We were both stationed at Camp Lejeune in the 70s, and I had reason to go to, to meet him, and I didn't know him before. But uh, during the course of our time, the short time together, uh, and thereafter, I said, boy, he's junior to me at this time, but I'm learning a hell of a lot from this guy. So uh, I made it a uh, point from there on out. Whenever I was with uh, then Captain Zindy, I would keep my ears open and watch what he was doing and take as much as I could aboard. And I found throughout his career, my career, and even into retirement, uh, I'm always learning. So whether we're out fishing together whether we're having a debate and a beer together, uh, Tony Zinni has a lot that is, is worthwhile, and I'm all ears when it comes to it. Now, having said that, uh, we have a unique relationship in how we do things. Uh, I'll establish a point. He'll argue. We'll go back and forth. But occasionally, uh, things will switch back. We both did some consulting with the old Joint Forces Command, and we rode from our home here in Williamsburg down to Suffolk to the command, and on the way, we would start arguing about some point or other operational ideas, uh, some things about some strategic thought. And uh, he would say, well, you know, Rip, you're all wrong on that, and here's why. And we'd go back and forth. So by the time we pulled into the parking lot, I said, Tony, you're right. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I was misinformed on that. I'm, on your, I'm in your corner now. Then we'd get into the command, and we'd be sitting there, and we'd pick up a similar argument, and he would flip on me. He'd pick up my argument and begin to develop that. So uh, it was a great relationship, but we're always back and forth. And uh, 
he, he has a, a knack of turning things around on you when you least expect it. So, um, well, yeah. and so I want so I want you to talk. So you, I'm sure you've heard this your whole life. This whole top down, uh, you know, um, dictating things. He makes a similar uh, this argument where he says, "I, you know, I don't like fire support control measures. You know, you shouldn't have them. We don't need them. No terrain objectives." You know, you know, you know, a blank piece of acetate, right? Ninth Marine scheme maneuver. That's a quote from him. Um, he looked at his opso and said, "Now you get it." And I understand after after listening and thinking what he's trying to promote, right? Which is that horizontal communication that you have to have on the battlefield to make things go faster and to make things work. But ultimately, when you're a more mature thought is, yeah, but those things are essential, and if you need them, you begin to use them. And then he looks at you and says, "Exactly." McNamara, you're not as stupid as you look. So I want to ask you about this. You've been vilified in Marine Corps history often as, you know, the guy with the shaved head before shaving their heads is cool. You're a trendsetter, I, I might add. And uh, and you had these rules, and you were adamant uh, You were adamant about it. Then all of a sudden you come on over radio, and you begin to talk, you articulate um, your experience with Mike 3-7, your other experiences in your career, and all of a sudden – doesn't look the same, and so I I I, I'm, I, I wanted to have you on uh, before I published the General's News interview and and kind of tack this on to the end of it. What do you say to people that say, "Oh yeah, that's top down. That's Van Riper getting down the out the eight thousand foot screwdriver." Well, uh, General Zinni said uh, he had no issue with my twenty one rules. I, I have no issue with anything that he had he said in that interview. Uh, we're, we're closer together than you might think. So let's take those 21 rules. Uh, they're, they're not 21 rules. They're actually a discussion of a particular problem that I would observe. So if you, uh, if you look at it, and it's not just a rule, but there's an explanation of what, what it means. Uh, I've got a set in front of me. So here's what, um, here, this one's words of advice to subordinates. And I say, take a larger, wider view of what is good for the Marine Corps. And then I have a long paragraph there describing what what I mean. Uh, the same for working in a positive mode. Don't advance on the troubles or problems of others. Be inquisitive. Assume nothing. Keep your eyes. Those are all part of that. Um, in in terms of the specific requirements in those so-called 21 rules, they, they were a result of problems I observed over a long career. Uh, they were systemic problems. They continue to, to happen. Uh, particularly in, when you're in the era of uh, after uh, some sort of conflict or war. So I, I never perceived them as, as lists in the, in the sense that uh, they locked you into something. They, in, in a sense, were the, the sort of conduct I expected, and here's, here's what uh, might get you in trouble if you don't follow them. Uh, the same with my philosophy of leadership. So I, I don't think uh, General Zinni and I are that far off. Uh, Leadership is not a one-way street. It's a two-way street, and if you've got a command, it's obviously multiple relationships back and forth. Um, I've always said there are three types of commanders. There's the one who walks in and says, ladies, gents, this is what we're going to do. He might say why, usually not. If somebody was bold enough to uh, question him, he squashes him real quick. I didn't ask for that. I'll tell you what we're doing in this outfit. People uh, generally keep their mouths closed, 
they're not real happy. And if the leader's confident, it'll be a pretty effective unit. If he's not, folks are trying to get out of this as quick as possible. How do I get out of this outfit, go someplace else, make a lateral move? There's the other leader that always welcomes uh, debate, discussion, argument. The problem is he or she never comes to a resolution. So it's more like a fraternity bull session. It goes on and on and on. And in reality, that's the worst kind of unit to be in. Because even if the commander makes a decision, tomorrow morning it's open for negotiations again. Uh, you want somebody that studies a problem, takes in all the input they can, makes a decision, and as long as the conditions hold, sticks to it. <clears throat> it's sort of the uh, porridge is too hot and too cold. The real leader is the one who walks in. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got this problem, we've got this issue. What do you think about it? And there'll be a free-willing discussion. It's never the rank of the individual that's contributing. It's the merit of the idea. And to the degree that you can support your side of the argument, and there's merit, uh, the boss will probably take it aboard. He or she can do two things. One is they have enough information to make a decision, or they simply run out of time, and they've got to make a decision based on, on what you've said. And I've emphasized this over and over. Decision is nothing more than storytelling. It's a commander or a commander with a staff telling themselves a story that makes sense. And it's that information that does it. People love to work with that kind of uh, commander. That's General Mattis. That's General Zinni. Uh, those are the kind of commanders that allow this free-willing debate, take all the information aboard, make a decision. Even the young captain whose view wasn't accepted, he had a fair shot. And so in most cases, he'll be very supportive of the decision because he knows why the commander made it, because he was part of that long argument, debate, discussion. And so so as you would articulate, um, w when people ask you about your list, and, and, I, and I think General Furness would be of the same mind, um, that, look, I don't know that I would call this a list in terms of do this, uh, some kind of rote, kind of didactic event. It is the initiation of the discussion that has taken us in that direction because that's where we're going. Right. Um, I, I think one of the rules, yeah, um, they, they came from what, my number one. Only the Marine, the sailor who owns a weapon, will draw, clean, and return it to the armory. This includes everyone from division commander to the most junior private. Why did they make that rule? Because they took over Second Battalion, Eighth Marines, and I see a Marine walking from the armory. He's got two rifles and a couple of pistols. And asked, well, sir, I'm drawing. I drew the pistols for the staff and COs, and this rifle's for somebody else. So wait a minute. If you if you own a weapon, you go draw your own damn weapon. You turn it in, make sure it's clean. You don't have you don't send Marines to draw your weapon. So, so it was, there was a reason for it. I didn't just uh, pull that out of my rear end. I, I didn't, that ticked me off when I saw Marines carrying weapons that belonged to other other Marines, particularly leaders. Uh, and the only exception ever made to that was a change of command. If you had a change of command and you're, you're going to go to a reception afterwards, somebody can turn in your sidearm for you. Other than that, <clears throat> you better be in the Army yourself. And that's why armies would would uh, get, get in disarray, because the unit leaders weren't in them. They were sending people. They didn't see what the hell was going on in the Army. You know, sir, I, I, one of the things that I, I walked away with, and, and again, it was a time that you were at Marine Corps University. Um, one of the things I learned was that techniques are never good or bad. It is the application of the technique to a given situation 
where it is either misapplied or it's straight up long, wrongly applied uh, that that you know that 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 renders a technique uh, either invalid or poor. And and so to me, I, as I as I listen to to you guys talk, first of all, I don't think I I absolutely agree with you. I don't think. Um, I don't think there's that much daylight at the end of the day when you sit down and listen to what General Zinni's articulating. And I, I, I myself, I mean, if if lists are appropriate, then publish them. But it's up to the leader to dominate the gray area, and that is the articulating why this is significant to what we do. And if you don't do that, then, you know, what you publish is probably not going to be followed anyway. Uh, if you do that, normally Marines are growing as as individuals and as leaders. Right, and, and a good leader, if they have rules for whatever the situation, um, there's judgment in their application. Right. It's just like doctrine. Doctrine is not dogma. There has to be some wisdom and judgment in the application. And there could be a lot of ways of how you implement whatever laid out with the rule, but uh, it establishes an objective and some idea of what the uh, commander expects. Got it. All right, sir. That's all I needed from you. I just wanted to. Yeah, uh, can, can I share a couple more thoughts? No, no, no. You absolutely can. You can. You can stay. We could talk as long as you want. I just don't want to be a boil on your ass. No. As I tell Marines, I see today when I interact with them, and I did when I was in active duty. I hate rules. I hate lists. Uh, I hate maxims. I hate all those things, and I particularly hate the principles of war. They've been debunked for years, yet they're still taught in almost every school. Uh, they were deliberately not placed in warfighting, either the first version, FMFM1, or the current version, NCDP1, because the authors, the author of that knew that the principles of war <coughs> were even disowned by one of the early proponents. So, uh, yet we have that out there. So, if you're telling me, if you give me a list, if you give me maxims, I, I shy away from it. But then you've got to be careful, because um, a number of years ago, I got a book from Colin Gray who's one of the great strategic thinkers of our era. And he, he sent it to me kindly, and the title is Fighting, 40 Maxims on War, Peace, and Strategy. Fighting Talk is the actual title. Fighting, fighting Talk, Colin S. Gray. And I thought, well, I, I'm kind of surprised, Colin. I think a lot of them would write something like this. I, I'll kind of scan it, and then I'll send him a, a nice thinking of it. Well, what I found out was it's really 40 essays, short essays, in which he... <clears throat> lays out uh, his thoughts on war, peace, and strategy, and every one of those 40 maxims are well worth themselves. It's not, a, it's not like a principle of war. And so in the case of my philosophy of leadership, uh, what I laid out in the, uh, the document that was called, uh, let me grab it here and make sure I get the right title for you, All right. uh, Words of Advice to Subordinates, that's what I saw those. They were... I laid out something, but I, I provided an explanation of why it was there. It's sort of what Colin Gray did. But if you're talking checklist and those sorts of things, count me out. And certainly count me out on top-down leadership. Uh, that's the worst thing that can happen. It's participatory leadership, but we know who the leader is, and we, we have to hold that leader accountable to making sound decisions and then carrying out their execution. You can't waffle uh, and pass off any shortcomings on those who help you to, to come to that decision. Uh, you're, you're solely responsible once you make the decision, but it's sort of like wisdom of the crowd. You better have as much good thinking as you can 
for the difficult problems you'll face in war and peace. Now that we're going to expand the discussion, so let me let me ask you this: How long does a as a as a leader, especially as your organization gets bigger, do you go sideways because you're now a commander of other commanders? How long before you snap the rope and say, "Okay, I'm done doing this dance. This is the way it's going to be." Is that simply? Uh, well, that depends on the situation every time because at the end of the day, this is a results-driven business. And, 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 and the more we mess around, the more we allow mediocrity, the higher the, the, the casualty counts are going to be. So I'm just curious your thoughts on how long do you dance sideways before you interject yourself or, or give more rudder steer? Okay, you, you, you've got some sort of a problem or an issue, and you're going to have a discussion, some would say a discourse, with subordinates, with um, those who uh, provide support to you. And in that discussion, you're going to come to some idea, some story that to you makes sense, and you would hope to the, the command as a whole as you tell yourself this story. That's a decision, and you make a decision. Now, if you've got the time, I'll give you an illustration. Sure. Uh, in Vietnam, I had command of Mike 37. That's when there were four rifle companies in the battalion. Uh, our battalion and a sister battalion in the regiment were having difficulties in their tactical area of responsibilities term we used at the time, T-A-O-R's. Ours was that were a lot of booby traps, what you all would call IEDs today. And they weren't quite as powerful as what the current generation is seeing, but they would uh, take off a leg of a Marine, put out eyes, take off hands. Uh, we couldn't seem to solve the problem. A sister battalion was in an area where the VC, the Viet Cong, were firing rockets into Da Nang, and they couldn't seem to stop them. Regimental commander decided to flip the two battalions to put a fresh set of eyes on these on these problems. Well, I was given a company tactical area of responsibility where most of the rockets were coming from. I had no immediate answer. Uh, I don't recall from what then was uh, the Amphibious Warfare School, AWS, now EWS, nor the Basic School, any discussions on how you stop somebody from firing rockets. Uh, what would happen? The rockets would ripple off and it would be a counter-battery fire was a waste of time, because what the VC did was they carried in 15, 20 rockets, they built a, rut, a ramp out of mud, they had declination instruments so they could get the right angle, they'd get the right azimuth, they would <clears throat> tie these up to a battery, all those who carried them in would disappear, one, one VC would stay in a foxhole, at the appropriate time you'd touch the battery, <clears throat> ripple off these things, and run like hell. So whenever the counter battery came, there was nobody there. So... <clears throat> It was a, a, a real problem. How do you stop this other than scouting and patrolling? Well, I gathered together the platoon commanders, brought the S-2 from battalion, brought in the 81, the 105, uh, or the uh, artillery Ford observer, brought in uh, what they used to call Kit Carson Scouts, who was a Vietnamese uh, right. who had been a former Viet Cong, and we simply talked about the problem. <clears throat> we didn't follow any damn rules like, the military decision-making process of the Marine Corps planning process didn't have, they weren't the names then, but they were the similar type things. We didn't follow any of that. We simply talked about it. One of the first things that we discovered in our discussion was that the Viet Cong had never fired rockets during periods of when there was a visibility. No, only during periods of reduced visibility. No moon. Dark night. Never in the daylight. Never in a full moon. One of my platoon commanders was sort of a wag, said, well, Skipper, if we had 24 hours of daylight, we wouldn't have this problem, would we, sir? Well, I wasn't too happy with that, and though I 
<clears throat> like free discussion, that just seemed like a, uh, a useless comment. And said, hey, knock it off you. Let's, let's get serious. Well, the artillery forward observer shortly after that said, Captain, could I be excused for a short while? He said, I've got to go get something. I said, fine, go away, but come back as quick as you can. Took longer than I thought, but when he came back, he had a chart. And it was the astronomical data for that next month. And he had plotted all of the resources we had to fire illumination from our own 60 mortars right up through the 105, 155, and even using um, C-130s that would drop flares. And he had plotted it so there would never be more than 10 minutes of darkness in our tactical area of responsibility. He'd taken away the nighttime from the Viet Cong. Similar as we talked about it, we found that the only place they could fire these rockets from was a relatively flat, dry piece of land. Couldn't fire them from out of, out of the wet paddings, nor could you fire them from underneath the canopy. Toon Commander went away. We had one to 25,000 maps. He came back. And he had highlighted every piece of ground in our area of operation that met that criteria, about a 20-meter by 20-meter piece of ground. So what happened, we understood the logic of the problem. And until you understand the logic, there's no counter logic. Once you understand the logic of what makes it a problem, then a counter logic emerges. The logic of the problem was they needed a flat piece of ground and they needed reduced uh, visibility. We took the, the uh, nighttime and the uh, reduced visibility from them, and we took the flat pieces of train by firing the loom and either putting patrols on those pieces of ground or putting our own fires on them. Went 90 days, no rockets fired, <clears throat> whether it been rockets two and three times a week. Now, <clears throat> that was simply telling us a story that made sense on a freewheeling discussion with all the leaders, and when it came time, I simply made the decision. And I... From that, what do you do? You, you give task, and from the, the task with a purpose, you got a mission statement, you write the orders, and you move on. And in today's parlance, that would be called design, if design was done properly. The um, It's interesting because um, I, some depending on your level of comfort and command, as you said, some people will just will give you, they don't want, they don't want to know, uh, they don't want to have that discussion, right? And then there's other commanders that, as, as I think we both know, or you know better than I do, um, the best commanders you ever worked for, as you said earlier, it's a participatory event. There's no doubt who's yeah. in charge, but but you feel like you're part of the team, and that this yeah. and 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 it it pulls you further in when you're when you're having those discussions. And and I like the way you you paraphrased earlier. They were. It wasn't a list. It was forty different essays, and and you liken that to your rules. There are twenty-one different essays on leadership and mission accomplishment and how we exist as an organization, so we can go be go be efficient, uh, go be efficient in combat. What else did I haven't I been smart enough to, to ask you that you want to say about this? The um, but well, the, the key is uh, you, you have everybody participating. And when you have a leader, in my case, invariably, I never found an exception, don't mean there won't be exceptions, those who are unwilling to engage that sort of free discussion about professional things were not professionally schooled. They were weak in that area. Uh, and the reason that they don't want to have that open discussion, they're not up to, to engaging in it. And uh, <clears throat> either that or they're 
they're uncomfortable in their leadership role, and so they're going to be domineering uh, r- r- rather than be part of the team, though the leader of the team. Interesting. All right, sir. Now, I, I just want to tease something else that you and I uh, have, have discussed. Um, you have thoughts on maneuver, on maneuver warfare and, and, and the updating of, uh, of uh, MCDP-1. Or, or, uh, can we talk about that for a few minutes? Sure. Or, or, I, I think uh, the best description of war fighting, either FMFM-1, the original, or MCDP-1, the current version, uh, I heard General Gray give last week. He gave the inaugural address to the Marine Corps University last week, and I sat in on it. And it was on leadership and maneuver warfare. And as he said, it's a philosophy. Uh, because we talk maneuver, many equated, and particularly in the era when it came about, of large mech units doing sweeping envelopments, that type of thing. No, it, it's not maneuver in that sense. It's a, a philosophy, a way of thinking. It's the use of, of commander's intent. We have a, a purpose, a reason why to every task you assign. It's the type of leadership we're talking about. And you can't practice it in wartime, in combat, if you don't practice it in peacetime. There's no such thing as a different style of leadership in peace and war. Uh, they're basically the same underpinnings that we're discussing here. Now, uh, the, when General Gray tasked John Smith, then a young captain, to write the draft for him of war fighting, that, that was all incorporated. And also with the historical examples, the change between Fleet Marine Force Manual 1 and the Marine Corps Doctrine Pub 1 was that the Marine Corps as an institution had begun to understand nonlinear systems, that is chaotic systems, and war and uh, battles and engagements are all chaotic events. They're nonlinear. They cannot be, they cannot be solved by rule-based systems, talking about rules. You can't go through a step-by-step process and resolve your, your operational tactical problems. Um, and so what, what you find in warfighting, the current version, are allusions to what some would call, it's nonlinear d- dynamics is what it is, but some would call it chaos or complexity theory. And so you, th- you see things about uh, systems and how systems will ha- have their own dynamics. <clears throat> If we don't understand that, we fall prey to uh, cliches. A, a lot of advertisements about battle management systems. That's, n- that's nonsense. It's as if somebody could manage a battle. I use an analogy. It's like me taking a canoe and going up to the, the hills in, in West Virginia, finding a nice stream, and telling folks, I'm going to get in this stream, and I'm going to manage the stream, and I'm going to manage my canoe. No. The, the <clears throat> The stream has its own dynamics. It will unfold in its own way, just like a battle will unfold with its own dynamics. The best you can hope to do is try to manage. If, and that is not even the right word, but, but to try to have exercise some sort of control over your unit, <clears throat> recognizing many of the old cliches that no, no plan survives contact, that you have to be able to adapt continually uh, because you're in this environment that's nonlinear, it's unfolding and changing by the minute. Uh, that, that was the difference between FMF and one and MCDP one. Now, uh, I've thought along with John Smith, the uh, author of both of those, a lot about what's happened since it was published 
getting close to 30 years ago. Uh, your current generation, one many of your listeners are, have learned a lot. Uh, and we ought to take what you have learned the hard way these last 30 years. We ought to take what scholars have learned about Clausewitzian theory, Sun Tzu, and his thoughts, even going back and looking at John Boyd, and we ought to see that does the current manual match that experience and match that new scholastic knowledge. I don't think it does. So I, I would hope the commandant at some point uh, sees the necessity to update. Uh, you're not going to change the fundamental ideas, this philosophy of maneuver warfare, but updating it. One example, uh, we spoke, have always, always spoke of uh, the elements of combat power, fire and maneuver. Uh, that, that's how you bring combat power against the enemy. I think what we've seen here in recent years, probably at least 20, uh, is the use of information as an element of combat power. And I'm not talking about the information that one needs to make a decision. I'm talking about using information against the enemy in terms of deception or what we used to call psychological operations against the enemy. That's where you're taking information and, and applying it. Uh, so your fire support coordination center ought to take all three of those elements of combat power and bring together. Um, there's not much discussion of everything from the, the uh, cyber domain, the cyber arena, in the current manual. We, we ought to look and, and add that. All right. So you, uh, we're going to work on that a little bit, and then uh, I would love to tee them up and and uh, and 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 hear you wax eloquent about those. So uh, just so that's a, that was a little tease for everybody. So, sir, first of all, again, I I want to thank you. I, I I can't tell you how much I enjoy whether it's you or General Zinni this discussion about discipline, which I think is so. Um, I think it's so important because I and I was just at Camp Pendleton on Saturday. I had somebody tell me a story about uh, a unit that, that had a suicide issue, or they they had a, they had a number of suicides in a relatively short period of time. They said, "Look, one of the conclusions was we don't know each other. So what are we going to do? We're going to we're going to play sports. We're going to compete as as a, as a group, a group of 900 plus Marines for five days. Hey, sir, we well, sir, we can't do that. We have training. No, no, no. We're going to stop and get to know each other. And one of the comments that that uh, I don't want to identify the leader, but he got was from PFCs when he said, what do you think? And the response was, this is great um, because, you know, we're getting to talk to, you know, higher ups for the first time. They're like talking to us. And, uh, you know, and he thought, you know, well, first sergeants, lieutenants, company commander. He said, who are you talking about? And they said, well, senior last corporals. And he looked at me and he said, are we that broken and that stratified that now in a, in, a, in an organization that used to live in squad bays in this idea of closeness uh, and intimacy as, 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 as warriors, we're now so stratified? And he said it's stunning sometimes how, you know, this, this idea of discipline that we have, this idea of camaraderie and fraternity has now – I don't think that, that a lot of Marines realize – a lot of people in the DOD realize that we bring all this in from our uh, our current society. And our current society has very, very little in common with with the values of the Marine Corps, the way the Marine Corps lives. And that change is not a 13-week event. 
that is an ongoing, and I think these discussions are so important, sir, because young leaders listen to them. I had one come up to me Saturday and thank me for, for these things. And uh, I just want to thank you for being part of it, and I, and I love doing this stuff. Uh, let me say, that kind of worries me because uh, the best kind of leadership is what we call used to call management by walking about or leading by walking about. And leaders, rather than sit at the desk and see the Marines on the other side of the desk or in some other formal setting, ought to get out about and go to the motor pool, go to the armory, uh, certainly get to the field when training's going on. And I have example after example of what you can do. Uh, I remember as the CEO of 4th Marines, uh, the squad, squad automatic weapon, the saw, was a brand-new weapon. I'd had no training on it. I was out in the field watching uh, Marines, and I saw a Marine that was cleaning the weapon. I sat down beside him. He had all spread out in his poncho. And I said, Marine, do you think you could teach an old colonel how to disassemble and reassemble that weapon? Well, right away, he took a lot of pride in the fact that he was going to be able to demonstrate to the regimental commander this weapon that, was, that he was so proud of. So we spent all the time, and... After a while, I successfully disassembled and reassembled it. Now, in the course of that, I asked him what he thought. He said, well, sir, it's great as long as you have the drum, but the magazines are terrible. So what do you mean? So we're getting all kind of ma- uh, malfunctions with the magazine. Well, I went back and talked to the regimental ordnance officer, and he said, yep, sir, we've, we've filed uh, some uh, information on this to the division. So I went up to the division. Turns out there were three manufacturers of the magazine. Only one of them had a magazine that was satisfactory. Two of them, the magazines were flawed and causing these malfunctions. And I asked them what they'd done. They hadn't done anything. The, the, the damn thing was sitting there at the division ordinance officer. So I raised enough hell with the assistant division commander and went back to headquarters Marine Corps. I, I would, no one would have ever known that. I sure as hell wouldn't if I didn't sit down and talk to that Marine. And I found similar examples. Going in a motor pool, crawl under a vehicle with a Marine. Uh, get out on the field at night and walk the lines and sit in the foxhole and talk to Marines. You'll find out a hell of a lot of things. Uh, get out of the damn office. Uh, the, the Marine Corps was never built for buildings and offices. It was built to be a combat unit in the field. Get out there with them. If I told you that, it, that companies have two company formations a week, and uh, I heard this and I was stunned by it, but I heard it from my son because it was his company. Um, they had two company formations a week. Uh, the rest of the time, the platoons ran themselves. And I looked at him and I said, I, I cannot fathom a Marine Corps that where the company gunny, company first sergeant are not looking at staff NCOs, NCOs, the Marines, uh, two or three times, multiple times a day, wire brushing, having a good time. But that group, that organization and that that uh, that gathering of that group. There's a lot of stuff that goes on, and and it's not just passing information. There's a lot of different ways you can do that, and now you're doing it via text message. That's great, and that's a technique that maybe you could use. But when you stop gathering, when the most senior enlisted guys in the company are not seeing people multiple times on a daily basis, and they don't know McNamara, who runs his suck all the time, all of a sudden McNamara is really quiet. Hey, right. McNamara. After this, you come see me, and that's how the Marine Corps has always existed. And 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 uh, and General Zinni told a really interesting story to me about uh, being General Haynes's aide at Second Marine Division, and uh, the Commandant General Barrow had come down, and so he's sitting in the front seat of the, the old, those old green govies, I think, and uh, and they're riding around Camp Lejeune, 
And uh, he said, and I'm listening, and General Barrow is really worried about taking the Marine Corps out of squad base. And he said, but, you know, we've gone to the all-volunteer force, and we're trying to raise the standard of living, and the other services are going to them, and we've got to be competitive. And yada, But I think we're going to destroy the soul of the Marine Corps. And General Zinni said, you know, we try to, we've been trying to save the same spirit of the squad bay as we've moved out of it. But I don't know if you reach a point of no return where if your senior guys aren't leading everybody, enlisted guys aren't leading everybody on a daily basis, who's leading them? Novices are leading them? And I don't know how that works, sir, and I'd be curious about your thoughts. Uh, well, a couple things come to mind. Uh, usually you don't get this kind of a spirit until the end of, uh, of a unit's life. I, I mean by that. If you're a unit that's going to be on the unit deployment program, towards the end you have that kind of spirit. I think what you need to do is at the front end do things that kind of give you that spirit. Now, two examples. Uh, I was chief of staff of the 3rd Division out in Okinawa. And usually after the final exercise in the spring, that staff would be a, a, a good, effective, efficient, functioning unit, and everybody knew each other. Well, I said, why, why do we wait till the end? So... <clears throat> When the uh, end of the summer rolled around and we'd done all the turnovers, uh, I would take the staff up to Korea for command post exercise. And first of all, we got out of the office. We got away from all the routine, mundane things that happened in garrison. And we got out in the field and we lived in the field. And we spent about a week up there. Well, we came back and all of a sudden I began to see that same sort of camaraderie that we'd seen at the end of the year before because we were out there doing something together. And I can see the example of sports. You could do the same thing. Uh, when I took command at Quantico, the, the morning after I took command uh, of the uh, unit, I took the staff and we went on a canoe trip. Uh, I said, no, I can't think of a better way. First of all, I wanted to emphasize that we need people to work hard, but we need people to play hard, too. So if I take over command in the first morning, we can go on a canoe trip with the, the uh, combat the command's staff, then that ought to send a signal to the rest of the folks of what we're, what we're talking about. And it was a short, you know, short daytime trip, but people, and we went out and we sat around and talked professional things, had some chow, came back. Uh, it, it began to bring the staff together in this kind of manner you're talking about. So again, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, I truly appreciate it, and uh, I will uh, I will be in touch, and uh, we'll begin to develop the idea for uh, talking about uh, your thoughts on maneuver warfare and how it's moved in 30 years, and uh, and we'll get that together. I look forward to it. Thank you. There you have it, Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper. Here, don't touch that dial. More of All Marine Radio coming up next right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. 